0: Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Boparai and my co-host, Don Nicholson. We hope you've all had a great weekend and we have quite a show for you this morning. I am really excited for the couple of guests that are coming in today. So we managed to pre-record an interview with somebody who I don't have been following him for a decade, Tom DeWeese. He's the president of the American Policy Center, probably one of the most outspoken advocates of getting rid of Agenda 2030 and United Nations and ESGs and all that woke crap. So he's coming in today and you have someone coming in, Don.
0: Yeah, look, uh, we've got Lawrence Day, who's chairman of a fledgling a political party uh called Heartlands New Zealand or Heartlands Party. And we get about 25-30 minutes with him. Um he's uh explaining why the overhang is so important and why rural and regional New Zealand need better representation than his in his view they currently have. So look, two really good interviews, in my opinion. Uh, but I would say that, wouldn't I?
1: <laughs> <You> would. <laughs> yeah. But What else? The feedback. We seem to have uh, gotten quite a bit of feedback, you know, touched on some nerve over the last week or two, Don.
0: Yeah, and I'm really happy to have that happen, Uh, you know, provided the feedback in good humour and and respectfully asked. I think it's fine. Uh, That's what we're asking for. We're asking for feedback. Uh, We're asking for uh, the truth. Uh, That's our job is to try and unbundle the truth without malice. And so, when we had uh, Doc, uh, Professor Jacqueline Routh on and then Dr. Doug Edmeads, we've had a bit of feedback about their approach to regen agriculture. And so, clearly, we're trying to unbundle that because it's not easy. There's no. a lot of varying opinions about regen,
1: and very polarizing ones. And I am honestly, I am glad we've got that reaction because that's how I believe humanity evolves discussion of ideas, debates, and may the best side win. That's what it is. But I have personally, I got some feedback, on. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned when you and I were looking at the rural newspapers that federated farmers had made a submission that making farmers meet median wage when employing overseas workers was not a great idea. You were pushing the wages up too high. And I had given the example that when uh, money, my husband, and I had landed in New Zealand in 2009, the m- wage was $13.25 an hour, minimum wage. I believe we began at $13.50. That time, there was no legislation regarding median wage or, you know, that is how much someone on a working visa needs to have. We were on a working visa for the first three years. 2012, I believe we got residency, and then PR and citizenship. So now, about four years ago, the government said, uh, "Let us make sure that migrant workers get at least the median wage to make sure they're not exploited." Right? Sounds sounds really good in theory, but what it did was when the minimum wage, I believe it was about seventeen dollars or so that year. 1775 the median wage was $21 21 you had to meet that all right that got pushed up to over the years $26 something an hour the most recent right now is $29 something which when you add minimum wage and whatnot it adds up to $32 33 an hour now our listeners would appreciate the fact that farmers are not price makers, we are price takers we if you just look at from the time uh, money and I have been in the country, the wage required to hire a migrant has doubled. Have uh, farming your commodity prices gone on that gone up that much?
0: Well, they go up and down, don't they and that's the problem uh you know, the people writing these policies had taken no cognizance of the the ebb and flow of product um fortunes or or sometimes they're not fortunes. sometimes they're they're very negative and so once those costs are locked in you have um you have no ability to take them out unless you dismiss the worker i mean it's an illogical it's it's the extreme edge of political manipulation around the free market that's what it is Mm -hmm. it's complete manipulation this is designed to push up wages across the board because they know you've got a conscience about this jaspreet <laughs> they they know that you are going to have to pay your local workers who clearly on merit are more experienced more they know that's the case so this is all about forcing up the wages across the board and moreover the um the immigration agencies are just creaming it
1: oh they are but the feedback that i got don was something to the lines of and i'm paraphrasing i don't have the screenshot in front of me it was something to the effect that uh, Jaspreet, despite not being in a first-world country, seems to enjoy paying her labour uh, third-world rates. Gosh, I thought that was quite uh, that was quite logic-trained for them to reach that point. For anyone who's interested, you're very welcome to come and meet our staff and see exactly what sort of third-world conditions you think we have. But right now, if for anyone who's going to get a visa, a working visa next year, the minimum wage they need to get, plus holiday pay and everything, adds to about $32, $33, comes up to that. And that's why federated farmers that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago made a submission. Now, I look at ourselves. At this point, when you're paying somebody who is, uh, for lack of a better term, say fresh off the boat or maybe has been here for a year, you're paying them $32, $33 an hour because that's what the law says you have to. You compare them with someone, a kiwi, say some a kid who's been born and brought up on a farm, has lived, breed, agriculture, farming. You're paying the two of them almost the same rate. You know, there's, there's, does it strike anybody that there's something wrong here? Someone who has six months experience is getting $32, $33 an hour. Someone who has a dozen years experience also gets about $32, $33 an hour because there is not much money left to go around. There needs to be a differential between a herd manager or a manager and a farmhand. But because the minimum wage for those on the lowest rung has been pushed up so high, the person who takes on a more demanding role more responsibilities actually doesn't make that much more. So if I were there, I would be happily just staying on as a farmhand because, hey, I'm I'm making pretty much as much as a farm manager. Talk about non-merit-based money.
0: Clearly. Uh, And that's again about uh, equalizing um, society. They want um, an ESG for farming. They want equity. They want people to be they don't want the top tier. They uh, want everyone to be sort of, I mean, if everyone, if, if the people pushing these sorts of regimes had their way, it would be uh, all people are equal, just some people are more equal than others. Um, <laughs> and uh, clearly, there's a top tier and the rest. And it is about um, condensing the gap between the high and the low paid. Now, it just doesn't work anywhere in the world. It just doesn't. Uh, when you analyze that, and merit is the only way to um, assess a wage structure. Um and I don't care if we get people coming back at us saying that uh yeah, you, know, you can bring in your diversity and inclusion rules, you can bring in all that stuff. Doesn't matter to me. It's around merit, how you do the job.
1: But that seems to have just gone out of the window, that bit of you know, being paid what you are truly worth. Because this is what we've come to. Everything is about, say, it's almost like a great equalization, one for all, all for one. And where did we last hear of stuff like that? Oh,
0: Animal Farm. <laughs> George Orwell, uh, he wrote about this stuff. Uh, yeah. So it's nothing new, but we have fallen in the trap. It seems we've fallen into the, um, into the hornet's nest.
1: We have. So for anyone who's thinking that I was mourning about the fact that I was having to pay... You know, someone first world wages? Well, actually, I am not. I am talking about being able to give people who take on more responsibilities money, commensurate with that, but not actually being able to do that because the pot of uh, funds for wages has to be shared. And there's only so much to go around.
0: Well, and like I just said, on the years that the product prices are low, that that pot of money for the wages still has to be found and so quite often farmers have to go into debt or farm owners have to go into debt or contractors have to go into debt to pay the wages and wait for a good year you don't do that um in many businesses uh yeah you know, yeah you know, those of us that like to be makers not takers suck that up we suck it up um often in farming because we don't have golden years every year you know you're going to have some bad years um but it's just the way of the world. And, and the other thing that gets me on all this is people outside the farm gate, they still have big opinions about what should happen in our business, um, but I have no desire to be in the, in the business of theirs. Um, it's not my business. So I think we've got a mindset to wake up in New Zealand and that is around, there's always this feeling now that private property rights aren't sacrosanct And people can have a view over what is yours. And they sort of say, what is yours can be theirs. And I think that's a problem. And again, when you go through the stuff that you and I have talked about, the ESGs, uh, the SDGs, and the linkages, the Club of Rome and all that, it's all there. It's all there. But of course, as I said the other day, we wear the badge of honor as a conspiracy theorist. But it's written. So we've got to... We can wear the badge with honor, I think.
1: Oh, Totally, totally. I wear it well, I think. <laughs> I've been told. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, even And even the Regen Ag uh, feedback we've had on the Regen Ag stuff, um, great we've had it. Uh, you know, I'm just not quite sure why uh, people are so touchy about it. We had two people posit views. Uh, everybody else is allowed a view. Uh, I've read lots of papers on and Ag. Uh, it's not unique it appears to be that's what a lot of farmers did practice although it seems there's no clear definition as i said so who's right who's wrong what we do know though Jasper and you have analyzed this is the money there's lots there there's a big grant scheme out of the taxpayer and we've got our um, farming organisations and and co-ops feeding the feeding the, the machine
1: big money, Don. And it's amazing how predictable it is. It always comes down to that. And, you know, I I don't mind whatever people do. But when you are getting, and this is the same thing I told someone who was, uh, again, uh, talking about the fact that, you know, these two experts we had, oh, no, that's not right. I said, they've just expressed their views. My issue is with legislated privilege, that seems to come with people out with their hands out for grants and partnerships and collaborations. Is that your trigger word, Don?
0: That's a trigger word for me, they're collaborators. <laughs> well, yeah. and the 16 of them, the 16 of them and um, and some of the funding of this on one paper, I looked at 16 and they call themselves collaborators. So,
1: And like when they speak about region, we still don't have a definition of it one clear definition that this is regenerative. So if, and literally every white paper, if you go look across the continents, has something different. So if I'm not doing regenerative farming, as one of the experts says, am I into degenerative farming? What gives?
0: Um, Again, you're just into farming. And when you want to have a straitjacket put on you, Um, listen to all these people that are trying to do it and when you have the Minister of Finance talking about Regen Ag as if it's the it's the new beginning you know that there's meddlers being involved here I mean I I couldn't care less uh who farms what or where and how actually because the dumb thing would be is uh because a lot of this seems to be about retention of soil carbon and and growing soil carbon well under rotational grazing that I've practiced in my life uh, cell grazing, you might call it the carbon buildup was significant, it, you could see it and you can measure it. So, um, uh, you know, I i just think there's a again, it's back to that story, uh, where people are telling you on your private property what is good for you. And if you want to buy that service that's good for you, fantastic. If you don't, fantastic. The big deal is people will always move when there's a price premium. Um, but no one has shown me that price premium exists at all. If they can, great. But the the one paper I read showed that, in fact, uh, I think there was sixteen farmers did a comparison um, regen versus conventional, and certainly it showed that the regen had to had to reduce. They had to reduce stocking rates, and their bottom line was significantly less. So, look, there will be a counter argument to that by the people that gave us feedback. I know that. And that's fine, because it isn't that we're all peas in a pod. That is the problem with New Zealand. Everyone thinks we're all peas in a pod and all the same. For goodness sake, let individualism flourish. And if you're an individual and you're creaming it because you're doing such a good job, keep it to yourself and make sure that you make your money for yourself. Because what annoys me the most, and I know this is a lecture now by the sound of it, is when people <laughs> talk about New Zealand Inc. As oh. if we are just one paddock and we're all in this little commune together. And I don't like it.
1: It almost brings back the thing, uh, shades of, you know, team of 5 million. And I have always detested that. When you start saying team of 5 million, as Jacinda said for the last God knows how many years, it always brought to me, where is the individual in this? I didn't choose to be in that team. Get me out of here. But as he was saying, talking about definitions. Now I'm looking at uh, our landandwater.nz and they have a white paper and they said they're going to be looking at how, you know, effective is region or uh, it's time to stop bickering, says Dr. Gwen, and focus on identifying any true benefits of that regenerative agriculture might have for New Zealand. So this white paper begins with saying that while a succinct definition of region ag would be useful for marketing purposes, they refrain from offering a definition for two reasons. The risk of constraining an evolving concept and the need for any New Zealand definition to be anchored in the ao Maori or the Maori worldview to you and me. So we are still not sure here about what we are talking about and, you know, how many of those practices. And for all we know, all of us might be, to some extent, actually be doing region ag. It's a matter of, you know, diggity. So again, over the last three years with this COVID nonsense, I've always said freedom of choice. It's the same thing we are now having. I think the MPI paper done, uh, if I saw that with Damien O'Connor said, how much money have they given? It says the Agriculture Investment Services, the MPI paper, Regenerating Out aura, investigating the impacts of regenerative farming systems. And this paper begins with a message from Damien O'Connor, in which he states, it's my pleasure to present this publication, which outlines MPI's Region journey so far. You'll read about a portfolio of 11 research projects underway through SSF, Sustainable Food and Fibre Futures. These partnerships amount to a total investment of $54.74 million. No small change. And MPI is assessing further research proposals. There is more to this than meets the eye well
0: there's it, it, as i said earlier it's it seems to be a new national psyche that uh you put your hand out and someone's going to put some money in it for you from the crown or from one of your uh, levy bodies or something like that it never used to be quite as bad as it is now and i i dare say it's it's like a drug um once you get addicted to someone else's money you're going to continually have your hand out for it and you know and and in a normal sense, you would want R&D an extension for farming and for any other business. Um, and so is this different? I think it is because there just seems to be too many tentacles down to self-interest here rather than just clear, uh, clinical, uh, open science for everybody to get to. I mean, who's going to own this uh, when you've got – look, maybe it. maybe I'm overstating it here. It just seems a little – a little too many uh, uh, fingers in the
1: pie. Yeah, because I am very happy to be corrected. But, you know, when the proponents of this are the same, last week when Don and I were chatting, we spoke about how the Auckland Council's climate page, the overview page, led to the Club of Rome's website. Again, a globalist organisation speaking about this. And... Last week, the Club of Rome and the World Economic Forum both released papers on how amazing region is going to be. And for our low emissions future, one can't help but be cynical. Maybe it's the last few years that, that have made us so the experience we've lived through. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think
0: this has been going on for, well, it's, it's an addition to it, perhaps. But um, this has been going on for 20 years or more, this growth in environmentalism and uh and clim- around climate, and biodiversity, and sustainable natural areas, and all this, uh, significant natural areas. Sorry, all this stuff it all interlinks, and people have found, mm, uh, and and you can't blame them. Everyone goes to the honey pot. Uh, if there's honey there, the bees swarm to it, and that's uh, that's what's happening here. Pe- people are going to the honey pot.
1: And. Um- If it is making people money, more power to them. But if it is not yet, you you can't even put a definition there about what it is. Then certainly a bit of caution is advised. I also came across this article on uh, ruralnewsgroup.co.nz. This is a bit older, September 2020. It says regenerative ag funding raises questions. The writer is David David Anderson. He says questions have been raised about the group, which has received nearly $2 million of government funding to promote region agriculture. Damien O'Connor gave a further how much is it? Let me get the figures right. $1.87 million is being allocated to the Quorum Sense Charitable Trust to support farmers to share knowledge about developing and implementing regenerative agriculture systems. According to its website, Quorum Sense was established by Region Ag proponents, and the website says we are now going to be set up as a charitable trust. But it has been revealed that some of the people involved in this are co-owners of another company that sells Region Ag seed mixes and so on. So that's that's what there is. and. So we are not the first people to question this. And again, when the roots go back, I'll again go back to again, Club of Rome, World Economic Forum, these same organizations. Is this our farming ESG?
0: Well, well that's what I mentioned earlier. It sort of all rings true to the to the ESG. Um, it just has the same feel about it. Um, the, the derivation of it, can be perhaps taken back to that but you can't blame these people for going down this track that's the inducement that's been offered by the state and by other players and it is good that these people have come back at us and said um they don't like what we've said and it is good that um professor roweth and, and doug, dr doug Edmeads meets spoke and it is good that um i think there's a guy uh Derek Moot, who's very well known as sort of a Mr. Lucerne for New Zealand, which is a, a legume, they've all put up their concerns. So, you know, in the end, it, it, this thing will either fizzle away uh, for a year, bubble away and go away, or it'll take take roots and, and grow. So whatever wins is fine by me. Uh, again, I just go back to the um, to my concept, which is don't care where or what or how people farm. Because if they don't farm in in some sort of um, balance with their na- the, with nature and biology, they will lose. You don't farm if you wreck your farm. You don't profit if you wreck your farm and your soils. Uh oh, sorry, if you wreck your soils. Uh you've got to take absolute care of it like any home gardener, growing carrots or parsnips or legumes in the back section of their of their house. Uh um you, you know how you've got to nurture the soil to grow good crops. It's no different on a farm.
1: Completely. Now, the region ag white paper, I am looking at it on our land and water website, and it says the lead researcher for this is Sam Lang of Quorum Sense. Sam Lang, uh, his Nuffield scholarship, I believe it's worth about $40,000, was also focused around region so, I was reading through that paper trying to get more of a sense because I am very happy to be corrected. Our job here, I see, is as opening up these lines of conversation and, yeah, be the best side win. But that paper mentioned uh, Managara station. And I started looking up the station's website. That station's story on regionag is also on the Edmund Hillary, Sir Ed Hillary Fellowship website. So when I look at their journey, there is a whole lot more there, which maybe the average farmer can't do. In 2007, Managara Station got $450,000 from Air New Zealand to plant trees. They have an ecologe that goes for $400, $500 a night. They have funding under the million meter streams for fencing and all. So, all these, and this is all money that I'm saying they have got legitimately. There is, you know, options available. You have the, you know, the, you've gotten up, taken the time to fill in those forms and get this. But can everyone do this? There is some privilege here.
0: Well, you've said it well. There is massive privilege. Um, and, you know, these people have said it's there to have. So they're taking it. And, you're right. You cannot deny them what was freely available. Uh, with you know, no matter how they put their case, they've they've managed to to grow their business like this, and um, hopefully it's making money for them. Uh, but you're right; not everybody can do it, and of course, not everybody wants to do it. Not everybody should do it. Um, but the people that want to do it, generally, if I if I uh, if you if you want to have a pure system. This would be just done of people's own volition without any other um, privilege um, like has come from carbon farming uh, trees for um, sequestering carbon dioxide for Air New Zealand. It just it, I hope that whole system falls to bits because it is nonsense. Uh, sadly, we're bought into it as a country. But, uh, yeah, look, again, people have a right to do what's legal and in front of them and these people are doing it uh i just don't know why they think it's great to tell everybody to do the same thing perhaps that's part of the contract they have to uh, they have to sell the story don't know
1: I, and i just like you i don't blame anyone if there's funding available it's legitimately available and you're availing of it fine but it's also like these uh pine trees now that have been planted all around me you know The government skewed, very, very deliberately skewed the playing field there by in 2017 bringing in the special forestry test, which allowed overseas purchasers coming to New Zealand to no longer need to prove an economic benefit to New Zealand when converting pastoral land into pine forestry. And I'm subscribed to the Overseas Investment Office newsletter. Every quarter I get an email and I look at what the decisions were approved for the conversions under what program. 99.99%. They are on based on the special forestry test. Now, I've never blamed the windows, the kiwis who have sold their farms into pines. That was the only option available. It was lucrative one and they did not skew the playing field. The government did it for them. So again, I am not personally speaking about anyone. But, Would it be right if everyone goes around talking about, you know, how great these pine trees are and why don't you also do the same? I I see region in the same way. But I had mentioned uh, the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, where also the Managara station was mentioned. I did a search and started looking uh, at the fellows that have come through the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, which offers a global talent visa. And we are the only country, to the best of my knowledge, that has such a program, bringing in people from all over the world and giving them one dedicated visa. So there's this lady there. I searched for the word regenerative. Found a whole lot of people who have come to New Zealand for regenerative ag. Erin Crampton is the name. And it says, career highlights. Erin built regenerative food supply chains in Canada for 20 years then kickstarted a region farm education hub to serve the farmers we've worked with and to scale knowledge. And she is, yeah, just a Canadian citizen. She's out here right now. And when I went searching for Crampton's market there, uh, it showed, Google showed up results that the Crampton's markets that she was part of in in Canada, it closed. And there's a brief... uh, Post there on their page that says, It's with a heavy heart that we must inform you that Crampton's Market will be closing our doors permanently on 12th March 23. It's a bitter reality that a business needs to be profitable for it to survive. And in the current economic climate, it doesn't work for us. So I'm in all part to her if she's come here, but we need to realize that it is not for everyone. And yet, right now, the push from our government. And from the globalist past for this one, certainly, you know, it raises uh questions in my head which are not yet answered.
0: And, and so, Jasper, um your research uh is as usual exemplary. And all I can say at this point is um we need to keep keep a watching brief on how that flows on. Um yeah. Keep keep our eye on the ball here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And Legislative traveller, don' the same thing that I was speaking about, getting farmers to meet median wage when they're hiring someone from overseas. This has been coming in, but now it is it's on steroids. How many farmers can get you know half a million dollars out of Fair New Zealand to suddenly start uh, planting trees? How many can get money for fencing? How many can put an eco lodge? So all right, the certain station and the region went the other way, it reduced its inputs or. Maybe whatever they've done, they're happy. But can everyone run that same model? There are people who have more debt. And the profits figures are not yet conclusive for us to be able to say, boom, it's going to be far more profitable. Let's go.
2: Well, legislated privilege um,
0: generally can can end in tears. Um, and that's my view. it should on on carbon trading because I think it's a nonsense, but that's just my opinion. Uh, I think it's been fallacious from day one. I've fought it for thirty or twenty five years. And I think anyone that can uh, think that um, pine needle soup is is going to feed the country. Um, it's nonsense, of course. Uh, so legislative privilege um, is always bad. um it it seems to be here in Spades and New Zealand now. Uh, It's the stuff we got rid of in 1985, but of course, that's only a generation ago. I mean, I'll never forget when I stood for ACT in 2014. One of the promoters actually said to me, or one of the leaders said to me, Don, get over 1985. Just get over it. Well, I'm sorry. I know that I'll die out one day, and that will be the end of my story. But that was something that was like going to war for the farmers of that period. It altered a lot of us forever. And to have someone in a suit tell me to get over it in the political party that I supported was pretty galling. And so I learned not to have legislative privilege in 1985 because it was a deep, dark hole when you get told there's no more of it. And yet we've got it back in spades today. So,
1: you know, when uh, I, mean, I have family in India. My family's all in India. My husband's got family in North America. And then 2009, we were, you know, thinking, heading out, where do we go? We came to New Zealand, specifically, Don, because whatever we had read, India works on subsidies. What you're speaking of, 1985, that's what we had read, that New Zealand had got rid of its subsidies. And it's, you know, free trade. The farmers are super efficient and they pull their own weight. There's no taxpayer money behind them. And yet, heavier
0: well that's absolutely true and of course uh in the uk and uh, europe you have what i think i recall being called multi-functionality payments so the farmers over there may not now get production subsidies either because that's what we had in those old days um uh, but they got these yeah so in europe they got multifunctionality payments which are like an enviro grant you fill out mm. some papers and you perhaps Fellow, a seventh of your farm a year or something, do that sort of sabbatical fellow or whatever it's called. I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit clever here, but New Zealand didn't have those, and now we seem to be growing into those same sort of concepts. If you want to have environmental protection and the way that urban and metropolitan people want to have it, then perhaps the taxpayer should fund that. Um, I've always resisted that, but in the UK and Europe, they don't. Uh, they take it with glee because those are industrialised countries and they can, well, they say they can afford it. New Zealand can't afford to pay our farmers, theoretically, for environmental enhancement, but but we're starting to do a bit of that. Uh, I find that that is a catch-22. That means once you're in the hand of the regulator, once you've taken the privilege, you can't argue against other regulations coming down there down the track at you so you compromise yourself if you take a dime out of a ratepayer base or a taxpayer base you absolutely compromise yourself and i know that's a that's a principal position i have but i see so many people saying uh to hell with it i'm living for today and that's that's the problem not many people have the principles i have
1: and i guess i come from a place where india you grow up learning there's no free lunches. There's no social welfare at all. What there is, there's a wee bit now, but 99% of what there is, is food, grain, cereals, rice, wheat, quota in kind, pulses. So BPL, we call it below poverty line, and they get their rations in kind. There's no money changing hands. Yep, there is a, a you know, ex-army, so there's a war widow's pension and something like this. But none of that is social welfare. So your husband died on the battlefield; there's a pension you're due, something like that. But otherwise, there is just in kind. So uh, you know, it's quality Indian mindset. If I'm ever given anything for free, the first thing is, what do you want? What what do they want? And I, I can go back to Waikato, Cambridge, early days, uh, 2009 to 2015, uh, and you would see banks you know, closed for good. I remember seeing it with Bank the first time and they came to somebody we knew their farm to do some work. So, okay, a bank coming there. There's money available from the councils for fencing and, you know, riparian planting and all of that. And I used to think, why are people doing this? Why are farmers not doing this themselves? I'm a great proponent of standing on your own two feet. Then you don't owe anybody anything
0: i remember when that was um about to kick off jaspreet i was involved seriously in the high level of fed farmers and i was tearing my hair out um it was happening even in southland in our local council where you got um some fencing money and some some planting money uh to fence off a waterway no farmer needed that in my opinion and there was no market failure in fence posts or netting or wire there's no market failure in nurseries uh I think it was the Taranaki Regional Council actually had its own nursery so farmers and and oh, other Lord. people could could come and get uh discounted trees I mean the interference in the marketplace uh has been significant and well has grown since then but they were about the first examples of this new way uh that we'd had sort of 25 20 years without that protection and that that not protection, without that um, feeling that you put your hand out and get something put in it in farming. So it only took 20 years to have a a bit of a resurgence. And as you have observed, it seems to be growing uh, currently. And no wonder um, farmers are sort of, you know, on one hand, you can't blame them because they see so much of the effort being taken by the regulator and filtered through the crown coffers and redistributed.
1: It's, it's a rare person, Dawn, who will give up something for f- that's being available for free. Yeah. In fact, I, I think my, my grandma once said, and, and I, keep, I keep saying this again, but it, some things from my childhood, now when I see them in front of me, it brings back to mind. She said that to really observe someone's character, watch them when they're being given something for free. That's, that's a mark of a character. Ah. Uh, I, I see that, but there is now, you know, money being dished out everywhere. And just like for these trees, there are bloody trees that are growing all around me. Three farms converted in the last year, all within a five-kilometer radius as the crow flies. And you can see the skewing. There's no free market left anymore.
0: Well, and I have a friend who wanted to sell a farm out your way. It was a sheep and beef farm, and he refused to sell it to a to a carbon farmer. Uh, so he's he's... He's kept it because he couldn't get the price that the tree people were from the sheep and beef farming side that the tree people were willing to, to pay. Now, that has never happened in my life where farmland was bringing less than you'd get if you planted in trees. That's yeah. and it, And of course, if you think about it, it's been farmed for sort of 50 or 75 years. It's got all the fertility built up by sheep and beef farming. Trees will grow like topsy on it. It would have been a fantastic forestry block. <laughs> yeah. But there's a man with principle, just couldn't do it. Couldn't
1: do it. It's a, it's a tough one, though. You know, there's some really big money at play when it oh. comes to trees or even region now. Oh,
0: true. And I do know that and we've seen in rural papers where some farmers have said, look, we just can't not take that money. It's so good. We can't farm. We might as well take the money and go and live at the beach um you can't blame them that's no. the that's the platform we've been told that we can we can invest in and in trade in and i think it's been predicated on quicksand and i hope that the quicksand starts to um, do it's bit very soon because every year we dig in my opinion i know this is out you know an out there opinion every day we let this nonsense of um privileged carbon farming under the guise of climate change and saving the planet is a day too late you know the tipping point as they call it on the other side of the ledger i say the tipping point happened about 2008 when they put forestry into the new zealand ETS, and it's been a downhill slide ever since now no one else will agree with me i think i'm on a almost on a club of one on, on that at the moment but i've fought it for so long i see no logic i see fat cats and, and, um, and I'm not against people, as I said, making money, but yeah, I just don't like it the way it's being done.
1: A club of one, Don, is better than the club of Rome. Go you. I, <laughs> I had to say that one, but yeah, for anyone uh, who's just joined in, Don and I have been talking about, and you hear us, we both use this term, legislative privilege. We've been using it in the case of these pine trees that have been given privilege through legislation and the special forestry test, laying out a red carpet for destruction of rural New Zealand, or be it now 50, 54 million that we saw being given to region. Again, it's there for the taking. So I I don't blame anyone. The legislation is skewing these fields or like the person who told me that I don't want to pay our labor here enough. Uh, so the legislative privilege there of uh, how well do you like it? Someone who's been farming in New Zealand for a year, getting $32, 33 an hour, as compared to someone who might be farming for a dozen years, 20 years, maybe getting $35 an hour. You think that's fair? Go fill your boots. I don't. And I don't think neither do you, John. No. But, <laughs> but I think we should uh, now make some time for uh, the guests we have here. As I said, we' are quite excited about the show. I Tom Deweese will be the first one, and he's someone who's fascinated me for a very long time, especially because Don, just like you, Tom does not mince his words. He certainly does not
0: well, he was um really uh, uh, an intriguing interview, really, and he was such an engaging personality. um you know. For you neither know, you nor me had met him, but he just slotted in really easily, and he's clearly experienced. I mean, he's been doing this for years. Um, interestingly, I hope we can get some feedback on his um, assessment of the state of the play of the world, let alone New Zealand. We've got common ground, in my opinion. Um, Absolutely. And so, let's hope we can blow this story out of the water.
1: Absolutely. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Don and I will now take a pause and join you back in a couple of minutes with our two guests. Tom first, followed by Don.
0: Lawrence Day from Heartland's Party.
1: Lawrence Day from Heartland's Party. So if you're looking for another option, these elections, who knows? You may or may not like this person, but uh, make the call. Cheers. Good morning, and welcome back to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet Boparai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. Now, we are very happy to bring along to you a fellow conspiracy theorist, Tom Deweese here today from the U.S., the East Coast, Tom. And before I go on to let Tom make his introductions, I am going to read out what the Southern Poverty Law Center has to say about you, Tom. And there's a picture of you. That is tagged extremist info, and it goes on to say, Tom DeWis has built a career of issuing scary warnings about Agenda 21, a completely voluntary United Nations set of principles for sustainable resource management, where others see sensible environmental guidelines, DeWeese finds sinister land-grabbing socialist UN initiatives that threaten national sovereignty, private property rights and freedom, not to mention turning our children into one-world government zombies. That's quite an introduction. Welcome, Tom. Yes, it is.
2: I, uh, I've been on their uh, domestic terrorist list for several years and so forth. The funny thing about that is that you know, they say I've built this career of spreading uh, conspiracy theories and so forth. All I've ever really done is quote them. And, you know, tell people what they have what they what they're doing. And uh, somehow that's become a conspiracy theory. So, uh, you know, it's
1: I know. And, you know, out here uh, in New Zealand, we have done the same thing. I've been doing webinars with uh, outfits, you know, uh, that have begun this radio program called Versus for Freedom. And we've been speaking about Agenda 2030, literally quoting from their own documents and it turns out, uh, people like me and Don are a cancer attacking grassroots of uh, democracy.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a whole lot of those quotes with me tonight. So, those. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I mean, they're very bold in what they. They're very clear in what they're saying. If you are reading their documents, and and once you begin to bring that out, then they start to deny it and and try to make you stop stop talking and stop revealing what they're what they're doing but every single thing i've been fighting this since 1992 and literally everything we predicted everything we said they were going to do is happening all across the world the uh you know they they said let me just share one of these with you this is their the the united nations uh a thing they put out on agenda 21 it says this Effective execution of Agenda 21 will require a profound reorientation of all human society, unlike anything the world has ever experienced. A major shift in the priorities of both governments and individuals and an unprecedented redevelopment of human and financial resources. This shift will demand that a concern for the environmental consequences of every human action be integrated into individual and collective decision-making at every level. But I'm the nut. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're the nut. We're the nut. We can read.
0: We can assess what their intention is, but we're all conspiracy theorists. Um, and in fact, I have to say at this outset, uh, at the outset here, we've got 120 people in the New Zealand Parliament. Not one of them would agree that we're making um, sense at the moment because they're all part of uh, the globalist agenda by the sound of it, uh, because none of them will accept that this stuff is in writing and is real. And it then filters, as you've talked about in some of the talks I've, I've seen of you um, right down to our local authority level. Our provincial governance uh, has got these parameters, these edicts from the United Nations all through their, um, through their, their planning. So, yeah, we're we're nuts because we can read, and of course, of course, we should take that as a badge of honor, uh, especially when the likes of the Guardian in the UK writes uh, negatively about um, those of us that that bring this sort of stuff up. I think it is a badge of honor. So good, good on you, and all, Pat that, here.
2: That's absolutely yeah. I you know it, here in in the in the states, it has now become. Uh, higher, edu- you know, real education, mathematics, things like that, uh, anything that deals with an absolute fact is racist. We're not allowed to talk about that anymore. So, you know, it, 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 I mean, they are literally, uh, key, you know, children in schools getting ready to graduate from high school who have gotten a scholarship or some kind of an edu- uh, of an, an educational honor to go into a college. They're not spreading that anymore because it might make... Uh, you know, other people who didn't achieve that feel bad about themselves, you know, and it, it, this kind of idiocy that we are dealing with today, all across the world is designed to make us stupid, to make us so we don't question anything that's happening. And uh, then they can just go ahead and rule and regulate us any way they want. We are just a resource for them. That's it. So, so, so
0: Tom, the genesis of all this um predates uh, your 1992 um, um, light bulb moment when you started uh, dealing with all this. When do you think uh, the genesis of this uh, emanated from?
1: And I would add a question here, Tom, if I may. For our listeners, they hear an American voice coming through the airwaves. And though I did read that glowing introduction to you from the Southern Poverty Law Society, would you introduce yourself a bit more?
2: Introduce myself. Yes. Uh, I am president of the American Policy Center, uh, and we've been around since about 1986. And uh, we in the early days, we actually were called the Foreign Policy Center in the beginning. And uh, we did such things as uh, we sent the only privately funded uh, election observation team to Panama when uh, Noriega there, the dictator there, stole that election. Uh, we were there. We saw what they were doing, and uh, the interesting thing about that is that uh, not a single vote in that election was ever counted. But the day I, the day after the election, I was leaving, and a newspaper in the airport said Noriega wins by fifty-five percent. <laughs> you know, uh, so we did that. We got involved heavily into the education issues. What was happening to the American public education system? which now is is producing these what I call global village idiots that are coming out of school. Uh, We did that. Then I got involved in the property rights movement. And as I began to see a lot of these really radical environmental programs that were coming out of policies, and I kept asking the question, what about the property rights of these people that are affected by this? And that's what got me involved in it. And uh, a, a very uh, good friend of mine, my mentor, his name was Henry Lamb, uh, he was going to these international uh, UN meetings, and he was there when they introduced Agenda 21. And he came home with all this information, and he brought a group of us who were property rights advocates uh, together in a, in a meeting in a hotel, And just kept piling more and more and more of what they were uh, advocating, what they were uh, planning and so forth. And we became the major voice across the country you know, to expose this. We created something called Freedom 21, and we held 10 national conferences and uh, began to teach other people, begin to build a cadre of people to uh, stand up to it and, and fight. And so that's how we got started. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So, yeah.
0: Gosh, yeah and so and, and so going back uh to my question about the Genesis, I mean it doesn't take one much research to realize it's a deeper um, history to this um this movement and so when yeah. did you what what do you think was the precursor to um to the agendas uh what predated the Club of Rome predated perhaps the formation of the United Nations can you give
2: your view on that? I can I, let me start by saying this throughout history there have always been forces who wanted to rule the world what they always did in the past was they put together armies and they invaded and they you know killed people and subjugated people and and took control these guys are diabolical they have found a way to get people to voluntarily give up their liberties with the fear, the, what they've settled on to get us to do that, this the, the most powerful message is climate change. I have had environmentalists get in my face and say, it doesn't matter how many rights you think you have if you don't have a planet to stand on. And that fear has gotten people to voluntarily give up their liberties. We can go back, uh, you know, at, right after World War II, uh, the the United Nations, really the, the creation of that. Uh, It was supposed to be a place where uh, countries could come together and discuss their differences so that we didn't have any more wars like we had just come through, and we could settle it there around a table. That was the concept that was sold for it. But uh, as you begin to look at what they began to pull together, the goal became global governance, that individual nations, uh, independent nations that have their own ideas, are the root of war. Uh, if somebody has this idea and this other country has this other idea, then we have that problem. So we had to have global governance where the United Nations was the voice of reason and uh, control what you know so so the sovereignty of individual nations became a target right there from the very beginning. And all of these policies now that we're looking at uh, are literally uh, that goal of creating global governance, and they they came up with this excuse of in, 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 you know climate change, environmental protection, so forth, as the weapon to use to get us all to comply.
0: And so I recall uh, when I first started watching American television, CNN had a strapline: uh, "A World Without Borders," and I, of course, uh, being the naive person I am I thought oh that seems good a a world of news without borders so the news will just come at us unfettered and unbiased and it'll be fantastic I didn't realize that the agenda was um, quite different from CNN Um, and I look at their programming today and uh, to get a bit of balance I watch watch Fox as well Uh, so I do get both sides of the spectrum uh, but you realize that the agenda was being pushed by the media uh, for many years as well. Um, so just could you give uh, a bit of a, a, a taster for the, the edicts of the Club of Rome and then their, their revision leading into uh, Gender 21?
2: Sure, yeah. Let me just share this with you. Uh, this is from the Club of Rome as they laid down the, the, the basis of what they were going to promote. The common enemy of humanity is man. In searching for a new enemy to unite us, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. All of these dangers are caused by human intervention, and it is only through changed attitudes and behavior that they can be overcome. The real enemy then is humanity itself. That is Diabolical! I've come to use that a lot. <laughs> it's just unbelievable that they, uh, you know, that they're they're straight out with it right there. And uh, what more I, do you have to argue with?
1: I know. I <laughs> I believe those ones are from that uh, the publication called the First Global Revolution from the Club of Rome. And I was reading this. I am a counselor here in New Zealand in one of our uh, smaller regions where I live, Southland District Council. And I was looking through the website of our largest council, which is Auckland, Auckland City Council, and their climate change page links to the Club of Rome. They say for more, go there. And I said, right, let me have a look, because unlike many other countries, our demographics are uh, a little uh, skewy, Tom. We have a third of the country just in one country, uh, one city, Auckland. And uh, pretty much Auckland seems to rule or lead the way in all of this, be it a super city being formed, or be it, you know, amalgamating everything. And I was reading the same thing. And yet, we are now being pushed through, and I've listened to your talks about how regional councils and local councils, and I'm now living that virtually, how every single document is about IPCC, and IPCC's predictions, the United Nations Panel on Climate Change. And this is what's going to happen. We are now going to be pushing forward a new legislation under our Resource Management Act, which they call Managed Retreat. So, already 80% of the country is in a handful of cities, but whatever is left of the coast, I don't. We are all going to be drowning really, really soon.
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. You say that in one city, there's the document right there quoting these things. And if you begin to look, now we have. Uh, across our country and in you know, our local cities and so forth, uh, they are putting these comprehensive development plans together to, to develop the community and, and looking forward to the future. And you will begin to see they are quoting right straight out there, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, uh, various other things like that, where they say, it. now here you have the Southern Poverty Law Center says, I made all this up and it's just it was just a good suggestion just a voluntary thing there's no rule of law to put all this in place but when you start passing legislation that encompasses those ideas it becomes the rule of law and that's exactly what we're what we're dealing with and uh it's it's just amazing i and i want to share one other thing with you here the uh, you know we we have and i'm sure you're talking about there smart growth And now we're hearing 15-minute cities. And first of all, as you're saying, what's happening in the cities, pulling all this together? Well, their plan is to pull everybody together into massive cities. And the rural people live in the rural areas are dangerous to them because they're much more independent. They can survive. They can grow their own food. They can do things. And people in the cities are totally dependent on the government. That is the root of the smart growth program, where they're determining where you will live, how you will live, they will control your energy, they control your food supply, they control your transportation, and all of that. And here's what's interesting about that. Came across this quote not too long long ago. This is a quote from 1968. Now, they talk about if you listen to your uh, planners and so forth, They'll talk about the reason that we need this these development programs is because we got to make sure we don't have chaotic growth of the cities. That sound familiar? Well, they here is this quote: The chaotic growth of cities will be replaced by a dynamic system of urban settlement. The region is formed by the economic interdependence of its development. The region has a single system of transportation, a centralized administration, and a united system of education and research. This was written in 1968 by a Soviet-Russian architect named Alexei Gutanov in a document entitled The Ideal Communist City. Oh.
1: Need we say more? <laughs> We totally don't need to say more. And as you just said, that, you know, once you start passing laws, what was voluntary is now legislated. We are in the second term of uh, what our MPs openly say, a socialist government. So I have no qualms saying that. I'm a minister for local government right now. Uh, there's an MP by the name of Kyron McEnulty, who has moved from one of our uh, councils he was the economic planner of one of the councils he's now come into the parliament and in his speech he said i'm a proud socialist the people of you know my constituency elected me our government uh, our ex prime minister jacinda ardern in a speech uh, in new york on the Goalkeepers uh, forum she said in 2018 that we are going to be doing what something no other country has done before and embed indicators like the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, into everything we do. My government will no longer rely on traditional measures of progress, such as economic growth, but will introduce something called as Living Standards Framework, putting the notion of intergenerational sustainable well-being at the different decisions we make. It is like surreal what we've what we've come to here. And, you know, people tend to forget a small island nation at the bottom of the Pacific, five million people. But gosh, are we being hammered hard?
2: Absolutely. And it's uh, uh, I mean, it's everywhere. And you think you're a small country, you know, having this happen. The United States of America is having it happen as well. And here you had a nation that was founded on the idea of individual liberty, private property, free enterprise, and the idea of our our constitution. Unlike almost every other nation on earth, most nations were set up, uh, almost all of them were set up where the government decided what your rights would be. Our constitution was set up with the idea that you were born with your rights and it's government's job to protect them. And here we are, uh, you know every one of those rights is under attack and uh we are we are doing an education system where our children aren't taught our history aren't taught our philosophy aren't taught uh, anything about any of this and so they don't know and when you're born with a blank slate in your mind then you are what you become is is what you put in and uh We have a whole generation. We have more than one generation now that has been victims of this education system that know absolutely nothing about what those rights are. So they don't even know to ask the question. So here we are. And uh, in a nation that was founded with you were born with your rights and you have a right for them to be protected to we're going to all be one big you know, pool here and uh, nobody will ever think outside of the box because that causes trouble. If somebody's thinking differently, that's going to mess up our well-organized society. <laughs> and, and when you have that, when you have that society, now you have killed the incentive for someone to look into something and try to invent a better way, to come up with a different idea, to come up with uh, new products and so forth. All of that is killed. People become zombies that just sit there and accept whatever they're told. And so what, what will society be as we, as we move down the road here with this, that, uh, no one is thinking ahead or thinking about how to get around this, so forth. We're all just waiting to be used. However, these tools at the top want to use us.
0: Well, I I think, Tom, we're lazy. I mean, there's plenty of people who do know what we're talking about. But they do believe that. that, Well, they do now. But they do believe we get new leaders in, like you had uh, Reagan. Then you had perhaps the next right of um, uh, centre leader was Trump. And you think the curtain's sort of coming down on all this nonsense. And they they unveil this stuff. They try to. And all of a sudden, they get booted out and we're back to square one. And just as an adjunct to that, New Zealand has a mixed member uh, proportional representation scheme as government, where we have 120 MPs, of which about, I think it's 48, actually are unelected by the regions that uh, they have no, they're they're on a list. So they get prioritised by their party. So 48 of these people are elected with no mandate from the voter, really, except through what's called a party list. And... Second to, Secondary to all of this is we did used to, uh, well, we still have the Public Works Act where you can expropriate or take the property of an individual for the good of the public and you compensate. But the dominant rules in this country now are under what's called the Bill of Rights, which doesn't really recognise uh, private property rights to the level that you need. And secondly, we have a, a Resource Management Act of 1991 that puts the precautionary principle ahead of everything and of course there is no compensation for takings under that act uh the precautionary principle as we find out in climate change policies in new zealand is using an rcp of 8.5 uh you know representative concentration pathway so the most extreme um um likelihood of uh catastrophic warming so we've got all these precautions in new zealand sorry this is a big statement and no one seems willing to rein it in. No one, no. because of our, no. our representation system, I think.
2: Yeah, well, people—they're frustrated, they're intimidated, uh, and uh, if they do speak out, then they're attacked, and and so they they pull back. Uh, you know, even even in this country, people are beginning to be afraid with our ideals to uh, gather in rallies and so forth because. Uh, we now we have these thugs that come in and start, uh, you know, violence in the middle of it, and then they blame us for it, and so people get intimidated. They have they these guys have left no stone unturned. They they go after every single if if something is a potential threat to what they're doing, that becomes an under attack. And uh, our side really doesn't grasp this whole thing. They have an agenda. And no matter what happens, I've said several times now in our election process that uh, if these people we're talking about here, the forces behind all this, uh, if if we lose an election, then we say, well, golly, that didn't work. Well, we'll just go home. You know, better luck next time. These guys, if they lose an election, they go, that's not going to happen again. And they become determined. The reason is they have a very specific agenda of where they're going. And we don't, we aren't motivated by something. We have wonderful things from our history that we should be out there fighting for, but we aren't. And they're getting pushed back farther and farther. And so people just start to accept it and and let it go. And well, we lost that one too. So this is what has to happen. One of the main things that I've been doing. Uh, over the last two years, really, uh, I, I coined the term Freedom Pod, to build a Freedom Pod in your own community. And uh, I realize we have a little different uh, setup on our on our governments. But I, uh, as I worked with some folks in Canada and so forth, and they've, they've reminded me that a lot of these things will still work, uh, no matter how it's set up. But the idea is, first of all, that we need to come together. You don't need a huge majority. You just need a really dedicated uh, group of 25 or 30 people. You begin to make a lot of impact. Research, know what uh, you're facing, know your enemy, look at the policies that are being put in place, look at the people who are putting those things in place. And uh, one of the things we have to do is make the people who are putting these policies together, the locally elected uh, representatives and so forth, make them feel pain for what they're doing. Make them responsible for what they've done. And uh, uh, and there's several different ways to, to organize and speak out. We've even got people now starting their own little newspaper because you can't trust the local newspaper. And uh, that's starting to have some success and uh, getting a way to speak out and so forth. I, I mean, I could go on for hours about what to do about all that, but that's the basic uh, idea of we have to get involved and it's not going to go away. One of the things everybody wants to do is support, you know, in this country, you know, who's running for president. We get our guy elected president and though no, he's going to take care of it. I can go home now. That's not going to happen. And that's what I'm talking about. With the Freedom Pod, you're building the route from the ground up. And, uh, you know, and if you have that that platform, a permanent infrastructure to fight back and it, it, imagine you get one guy elected and you leave him there and all these other forces are coming at him and he can't win. And we've got to learn that. Do it at home.
1: I found myself nodding vigorously when you were just talking about that local. And that's something where Voices for Freedom, we have done that. We have about uh, well over 100000 members across the country. Well over that now, which is pretty good for such a small population base. It is. Have yes. Coordinators, 100 plus coordinators in different towns and cities, villages even, one of whom I am, and which is why I had media attacking me like last year. VFF with his Voices for Freedom coordinator, anti-vaxxers running for local body elections. They helped me actually. I should give credit where it's due. Otherwise, no one would know a farming mum in the sticks, and here I am on the council. But... For me, it has always been about local, because ultimately, as I've often said in all those webinars, when the agenda comes through, it comes through to your local council. And what you said, make them uncomfortable. I'm one of those. And, yep, I would like to be made uncomfortable, because for many of us, our politicians are not reachable. We have two islands. I mean, I couldn't even make it to Wellington last year for the protests. The farm had a drought. But Our local representatives are those who live, walk and talk in our communities. And that is where the pressure has to be. Because just, and I've had many people, you know, tell me, oh, but this year elections are MPs and who are you backing? I said, I should admit that at times I've been guilty of not even voting in the central elections. For me, local is where it is at. If every one of ourselves just starts looking after our own backyard, that's the country sorted. But you know, the central elections and the way the media whips up the hysteria, it makes them think, bring an all-new set of uh, faces at the beehive, which is what we call our parliament, and very aptly so, I'd say. Waspite, waspite might be more appropriate. But they seem to think that if you change the elections, uh, just the party, it would happen. But currently, our opposition, who everyone is gunning for in the next election, that, you know, we've had enough of two terms of a socialist government, People need to realize here that the face, the leader who's heading that, Christopher Luxon, was the guy whom our last prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, elected to to head her business advisory council. That man at that time was head of Air New Zealand, the CEO. So will that change? You know, is it national politics or is it local politics that really make a difference?
2: Exactly. Well, you know, people ask the question. That, uh, you know, how is it that these policies pop up? Where do they come from? And and uh, you, you see your city count or, or your local community uh, government come up with something and you begin to look and you see, well, that's identical to what they're doing over in another town, in another town. And uh, what people have to understand, these are not just policies that pop up from different pop- t- politicians or whatever. As I said, there's an agenda. What a lot of people don't understand is that uh, your elected officials, whether they are local or government or federal, uh, you know, national, uh, are surrounded by an army of non-governmental organizations. These are the people; they work directly out of the United Nations, many of them, uh, and they are the ones that bring the policies to them. And they, uh, when one of them gets elected, you maybe elect somebody who's really a good guy, sound like he's going to really do some good work. And all of a sudden, he's turned on you, won't even talk to you anymore. Why? Because he's been surrounded by these people. They are giving him money. They are giving him uh, uh, sample legislation. They've got it all right here in a box, got the money for you, don't even have to think, put it right in place. Step by step by step, that agenda is put into place. And uh, they begin to believe, well, this is a proper role of government. One of the things you'll hear them say is, well, this is just how it's done now. And so step by step, they put it in place. And now one of us walks in and says, well, you know, this policy will do this. This is not good. This is going to hurt us here, whatever. And, And these guys are whispering in his ear, the guy's crazy. Don't pay attention to him. You know, <laughs> This is what goes on. And uh, th- we have to understand that. The bottom line is, while all of this is going on, we aren't there. And that's what has to change. And that's what I mean by building a freedom pod and a permanent infrastructure to fight back. Uh, one of the things you can do is have three or four people that volunteer to be what we call the watchers all they have to do not to say anything don't have to do anything just go in and sit and listen and uh, every public meeting they will begin to see who the players are they will begin to see may, they might even hear about a policy coming up before it's even been introduced and now you've got the goods that you can begin to organize against it before it's put in place things like that we have got to be there to understand what's going on and uh and and be ready for it so you know that's Well, yeah, I think there's a big dose of cynicism required when you're sitting in the room uh,
0: with these people, uh, because as you say, the agenda is well and truly in place and it's subtle and it just creeps through and and elevates itself. In New Zealand, we have a system uh, that suggests um, that you submit. So you you do submissions to policy. Uh, By that very inference, you've already been beaten because the term submission is all about losing isn't it? And giving yes. in. So it's the stupidest concept and I've been part of it for 30 years and it took me a long time to realize all I was doing was dignifying the rubbish that was coming out of, of the political uh, masters, a uh, political class. So can we just move on to one other topic? Um, sure. What's the role of f- uh, philanthropic uh, organizations in all of this? Uh, Cause they appear to be just so nice uh, everybody's doing the right thing and um yeah you know, the world's going to be a better place because we're we're doing this uh, charitable sort of stuff my unbundling of a lot of this stuff shows that there's a fairly good paycheck at the back of it all for for some of these philanthropists
2: how do there's you see it there's massive amounts of money there's money coming out of the UN there's money coming out of foundations there's money coming out of the governments to put these things in place uh they they call themselves philanthropic but uh they are they they have this agenda and uh, you know here we have like the rockefeller foundation the ford foundation these kind of people with massive amounts of money and you know they're all part of this agenda and uh they uh, I'll, i'll give you an example of one of the things that happens uh there is a um one organization uh oh now now my brain just went quick. Yes, they uh, they. It's one environmental organization that has a huge amount of money, and if they want to stop uh, some kind of uh, of a development somewhere, uh, they just want it. They don't want it. They don't want to have it happen. They will come up with a reason like there is a certain sucker fish that lives there, and that's their habitat, and uh, so they will now. Environmental Grantmakers Association, what I was trying to say, they will put up a million dollars and create the Save the Suckerfish Foundation, and they will start a whole big campaign for the environment to save this. And they will stop. There's a situation in Los Angeles where they've been trying to extend the runway there for a long time, and they can't do it because of this very kind of a tactic. That they they are saying out in the field where they want to put the runway, there's something you know endangered living out there. This is the kind of tactics they do, and uh, they they make this stuff up. The environmental movement is nothing but massive lies. Now there I go. The Southern Poverty Law Center is going to love that line, but it is true. You can look at almost every single policy that they are trying to put together to protect the planet and find out it's damaging the planet. And uh, my 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 prime example of that is the wind and solar movement, that here we are, we're not going to have uh, coal and oil and, and you know, uh, the, all these different things, and everything's going to be wind and solar. We're talking, in order for them to accomplish that worldwide, you are talking about Millions and millions and millions of acres that are underneath plastic solar panels or wind towers, and two things will happen. First of all, if you go underneath those solar panels, you're going to find out that there is nothing but cement and infrastructure under there. Talking, Talk about paving the earth, putting all of that in place. If you have all of these wind towers out there, you are not going to have anything flying in the sky to protect the environment, you understand. This is what we're looking at in order to put all of this in place. And uh, you have a coal plant and it takes up two or three acres and it covers several cities, provides what they need versus this. And uh, on top of that, there's all kinds of copper and there's all kinds of, you need oil to make plastic. You need oil to make the wind towers turn. All of that is part of it it's all based on a lie. And, uh, you know, they're destroying our society on that lie.
0: Well, you know, they, they all talk about the externalities uh, that that sort of uh, uh, an activity causes, like, uh, like, for instance, we're dairy farmers or, or the like in New Zealand. Um, we're not paying the full cost to the environment for the use of the water, the sun, the, the air, the whole lot. We just don't pay. And therefore, consumers actually have never been asked to pay if that's the truth. But we still resist uh even as a country with um eighty percent plus renewable energy uh we still resist the ability to do nuclear um power stations that could m- minimize all the effects you're talking about through wind and solar uh they would be you know in New Zealand sense it would be placed in a in nearer the bigger city rather than having all the transmission losses um there's so much simple many simple remedies for energy shortages. I, I don't have any negativity towards electrifying stuff because it's very clean and it's simple, uh, but it's it's got to be efficient and it's got to be um, unsubsidized. And currently in New Zealand we because of the climate policies we're going to be um, allowing uh, well, we're giving privilege is what the word is. I'm not quite sure if it's subsidized. I can't defend that entirely but the privilege is high and, of course, society believes it's doing the right thing, uh, but the society is going to pay for it. The electricity consumer is going to pay for it. So I don't know, Tom, We've um, things could be so much more simple, but I look and observe and get hope from the likes of Michael Schnellenberger, who uh, I think I've got his name right, who was massively involved in Greenpeace and now is uh, a, a zealot or more, he promotes nuclear energy uh, as as a savior for for dirty energy, as as they call it. So
2: yeah. let's have let's hope we have some common sense develop out of all this soon. There there have been many scientists who first bought into all of this. Who had done their own research and have found out that it isn't true and, uh, you know, have, have changed sides on it. And that's, but what happens then is that they are cut off from any kind of grants. They're cut off from having anything published in any scientific magazine, you know, that sort of thing. We are dealing with something here. I'm on the front lines of fighting this right now, uh, up in the Midwest of the United States. They are working to put in a carbon capture pipeline. To put in, you know, bury carbon into the ground to protect the environment. And what we have found, first of all, I've got a chart from the US Navy, by the way, that shows that we are going through a CO2 starvation. CO2, carbon is not a pollutant. Plants have to have it in order to grow. And what we're looking at now is we are now at like 460 parts per million in uh, CO2 right now. And we, re- we, we really can hardly survive under less than 1,000, uh, 1,600 parts per million. And we're going down and they're burying it into the ground to save the environment. And on and on and on like this that, that, that we're having. What they're doing with all this and all that description of what's happening with the solar panels, millions of acres of these things so forth, Not only are we destroying farmland that we need to raise our crops and feed us, but, um, we're now finding, I've got some scientists who've told us that, um, one of the things that's, that's coming about with this is the possibility of a new dust bowl, like destroyed the economies back in the thirties and so forth, uh, because of what's happening. You're also finding that, uh, putting these wind towers out into the ocean are affecting whales. <laughs> here we used to call these guys tree huggers in you know, the environmental movement but uh got a thing here from um uh Scotland where putting all of the uh, the wind industry uh in place they have uh cut off the trees in over 17,000 acres in just tiny little Scotland, and they wiped out 14 million trees to protect the environment. This is what I, I mean, I know I'm getting repetitious on this, but over and over again, plan after plan after plan to protect the environment is destroying the environment much beyond anything that industrial uh, man could do uh, you know, for this. And this is what we have to understand. This is not about protecting the environment. This is about creating an agenda to get you to voluntarily give up your liberties and for them to control every aspect of your life. And the other thing, one more thing, everything they're pushing right now is to get rid of gas and oil and coal, and everything's going to be electric, electric cars, electric ranges in your in your uh, kitchen on and on. We have all these kids that are using their their computers and their phones and so forth, every electric, 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 everywhere. There's not going to be any electric. If we put all of this in place the way they're saying, we would have 4% of the electric we need to run our societies. So, young people, listen. This is what's happening to you. Well, I think you've just highlighted all the
0: externalities that aren't being talked about for day-to-day living. No matter where you look, um, even if you diminish the uh, amount of fossil-based, fossil-based uh, um, goods and services you have, it's not going to end tomorrow. Um, and electrification is a big, big deal that uses masses of resources um, and will limit um, some of those resources for other uses, like, for instance. Uh, coppers or cobalts um things like that that can't be they're going to be dominated by the need for the the current battery manufacturing I mean no one thinks about all this stuff even though there will be evolution and batteries will change they perhaps won't have that I mean I've just got a belief that you trust in the evolution of ideas and uh and life's good and you have property rights stable property rights uh as you promote uh, but, but we're a long way from that, as you say, Tom, uh, why is it that we can't get my neighbours to think like me? Oh, it just seems, so these freedom pods you talk about, I, I think what a great concept. Um, but I tried immediately, thought, who could I go to? Yeah, I could go to Jaspreet, uh, but I i haven't got an army. Uh, you, you talk about three or four in a, in a pod there's not many people thinking that this is a big deal yet because it, mm-hmm. it hasn't hurt them as significantly as it needs to. Uh,
2: so I'm, I'm a bit concerned about what to yeah. do next, but talking about oh, it. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. They, uh, I have found over 30 years of fighting this, that um, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of audiences who were half asleep and rolling their eyes and not paying attention. And, what I found over the years is if you were not affected by these pro- these policies yet, you didn't care. The people who became our fiercest warriors in fighting against this stuff were people who were affected by it. And uh the to me, the positive to me about all of this, I try to look for the for the the good in in, in what's going on, is that they have now moved, I think faster than they probably should have and more people are waking up to it and uh, i know a whole lot of people who have been uh, on the left and so forth who are turning and changing sides and because they're seeing uh, this they bec- now everybody is a victim of these things or they will be very shortly we're talking food shortages we're talking energy shortages we're talking transportation shortages uh, we're talking about eliminating pub- uh, private homes and everybody living under public housing and so forth with the, you know, they're even putting out putting landlords out of business with their higher taxes and with rules and regulations, which means that all housing will become government housing. This is where it's headed. Uh, and you know, more and more people are waking up to it and uh, we're, we're getting more who, who are joining us. And we've got to build on that. And that's that's the bottom line.
1: And yesterday I was in council the day before, and we were speaking here about, you know, there's certain bridges that my council can't seem to afford to pay for anymore. So we had people who came, farmers, who have property on both sides of the bridge, and suddenly their stock now needs a 15-kilometer detour. not to add just the complications of managing a property on both sides. And on the other hand, the same council has been given, because I should add, we had a very centralized country in terms of funding. Amongst the OECD, we are probably the most centralized. The state governments or you know, the provincial ones like us, we get about 6% of the tax take. 90 plus percent of the tax take goes to the center government and we then it's doled out to us. So at the same time, when our council can't afford these bridges to be kept open and suddenly everything is a safety issue and has to be shut down promptly, we are putting in brand new toilet blocks. We are, they say, putting up a $3 million of an open spaces program out here. We live in the great outdoors. This is a stunning part of the world to get people to appreciate their surroundings more. And it's and I was speaking, I said, does someone think something is really screwy here? Because we can spend 3 million for this, but we can't use those funds anywhere else because they have come tagged with a specific purpose. So And when you put it like that, there's really no denying that this makes absolutely no sense, that you can't afford to connect people, give them the very basics of life, but let's spend X, Y, Z on connectivity, internet. Let's spend this much on, um, say, open spaces program and new toilet blocks in public parks. It's just gone insane. And even some of the most... uh, Loyal supporters are now of this the socialist government are now like thinking what's really happening. Our hospitals in New Zealand are in absolute shambles. Absolute. I had my daughter, seven year old, having to wait 48 hours to get her broken arm seen to. Can't fault the doctors after two days in A&E, which is what we call our ER. When they came, they did the job really well. They you know double checked the X-rays and this and that and swelling in elbow, but 48 hours. And that was for a child who's pretty staunch. I have yesterday been told of somebody who was there with two fingers hanging by a tendon. This person's pain was that bad that he was going out of the ER to spare others, you know, his shrieking because he literally had to go out and scream and get it out. But all he had was ibuprofen, someone else sitting in a wheelchair who by the time we left at hours later was unresponsive. And yet you're like, let's spend half a million or $3 million on open spaces program.
2: Yeah, exactly. We, uh, you know, since the COVID lockdowns and so forth, we have found that they have literally destroyed the American medical system. They are literally telling doctors that they cannot recommend anything other than what the federal government is telling them that they can recommend. Uh, And they will lose their license if they don't follow suit with that. And uh, you know, we're you know we're running into that the the whole thing. I am um, one of the things that uh, I, I'm telling my audiences today about all of this because I, I hear what you guys are saying about what you're up against. and and, uh, and it, it I mean, it just seems almost hopeless in in many ways. But one of the things that we need to do is stop being so polite. The other side will never give you an inch. To try to say anything that you want to say. And we just go, oh, okay. And we're very polite people where, you know, we're, we're uh, ladies and gentlemen and so forth. And we let it go. And we, as I said earlier, making these officials feel pain and responsibility for what they do. I'll give you just two examples of, of some things that I've recommended some people. I was in a, a city up in Colorado, state of Colorado. And they were telling me that the main source of income there for their community was oil. And a woman on the city council had passed some kind of legislation that was affecting the oil industry. And they were showing me a chart of how the the income is going down. I said, put her name on it. It's her chart. (laughs) uh, Make her responsible for what she did. I was talking to some people up in Maine just a couple of weeks ago. And they were telling me how they're putting uh, these policies in place that are eliminating uh, neighborhoods, single family neighborhoods, single family homes to build it all into this high rises, these smart growth communities. And I said, find out who voted for this bill and go take a picture of their house and see if they live in that kind of a place. Let's put it right down there. How dare you tell me I have to when you live like this? These are the kind of things we need to do to bring it home and make these guys feel the pain for and responsibility for what they're doing to everybody else. How dare you tell me I have to live this way when you live like that? So that's <laughs> and, and,
0: and the contradiction uh here I, I've tried to expose in my political life was that um the land the sea and the scenery pretty much give up everything is the genesis of the economy and um and yet the people that are telling me to produce less are the people that are giving the edicts that want you to produce more to pay for the local taxes and the central government taxes so i've still got this view that the biggest farm even though i'm a farmer the biggest farm Uh, isn't the individual farmers the biggest farm is the political class in New Zealand they're farming us completely and uh, I don't know why I can't get that message through but I mean for instance my property taxes would be 10 times more than a person um, uh, living in just a house down the road without um, an acreage so but they've got equal access to the base services um it just makes no sense equal access equal opportunity equal payment for taxes surely uh should be should but no we have property valuation based rating and that skews the scrum um against
2: against farming really yeah it does Uh, you know one of the questions that uh, i'm asked all the time uh and i and i really ask it myself these forces who are putting these policies in place and they are destroying economies, destroying a way of life, destroying the food supply, destroying the energy supply, what are they counting on to live? They have to live in that society as well. And, uh, you know, it's a a toughie to ask that question. Uh, I've heard all kinds of really wild, you know, comments about this. And I'm beginning to see, you know, they're trying to develop robots. Maybe they think robots are going to create all this stuff for them. They can live that way. Uh, You know, all the the all the uh, the goods and services that are left just go to them. I don't know, but but literally, this is and that maybe is a good question to ask him. When you destroy the economy with this particular policy, sir, how are you going to live when that is put in place? You know, It's it's a question.
0: Perhaps they haven't thought beyond their nose because there will be the top dog in this regime or there will be a bunch of top dogs, but there won't be lots of top dogs. And uh, it's about who's going to be eliminated uh, in that regime. So these people in the middle uh, might just be called the useful idiots that um, have is a term that we've become used to in this country. Absolutely. Yes. Years.
1: Gentlemen, yeah. if I may now go to something we've not yet touched upon, cultural Marxism, because I see that here. I am a person, I migrated with my husband to New Zealand in 2009. And I come from India, where for centuries, millennia, our politicians, our leaders have pitted us against each other based on religion. So when I came to New Zealand in 2009, it seemed like a peaceful place, relatively egalitarian. There were not so many, you know, in India, it's almost like, okay, you're a Sikh. Let's pit you against a Hindu. And your temple, can there be another worship place here or something? All this, all sorts of nonsense goes on there. And we laugh like politicians only remember us at the time of elections or a famine when they need farmers. Otherwise, everything else goes through the dustbin. And last four or five years in New Zealand, I am again and again, I get the sinking sense of deja vu. That's I'm back where I came from. We now in New Zealand, we have the Maori population and you have people, settlers who came from other places. This was early, say, 1800s, 1840. There was a treaty signed between the Crown, the Maoris, the settlers, and right, the basic premise of the treaty. And again, I I speak as someone who's not been here that long, was we are now one people. Suddenly, in the last five years, everything And this treaty of uh, that New Zealand signed, it's called the Treaty of Itangi. They are using this because we have literally handed it over on a platter to implement the UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And we have a cultural war of sorts, the likes of which I can honestly say now, I've not seen in India even, it's far worse. Everything is now, you are supposed to look at the world through the lens of your identity, because it seems nothing else matters. What my heritage is, that's all who I am, that defined who I can become, and that's all I can ever aspire to. I know you've had those sorts of issues, and we've seen Black Lives Matter and Antifa and all of those in the U.S. Out here, it is a bit different, because for a relatively long time, there has been peace There has not been, you know, you have major deployments of your troops, uh, Tom, but New Zealand, we are very small in the bigger scheme of things. Much of New Zealand, and we are so far away from the world, has been peaceful. And there's been intermarriage, there's been peaceful coexistence. And now, in the midst of this COVID nonsense, our government decided it's a great time to make an ethnicity-based healthcare system. So $700 million spent on creating a new Maori healthcare system. The basic premise of which they said was that the average Maori lives seven or eight years less than the average other non-Maori New Zealander. So that means doctors must be racist. So we need a separate healthcare system. They are now talking in the wake of recent floods we had at one of our prime productive areas in the East Coast. They are now saying we possibly might need a Maori civil defense system This thing is not ending and the wedge that it's driving in between society. I've had friends here, white friends, whose daughter, a very sensible teen, has come back from school telling her parents, I need a note to get out of history lesson because the way the lesson was delivered made me as a white child feel, God, I am horrible. My ancestors are horrible. I I, I need to just get out of here. What, is, what are your views on this? Because I see this tying up, this, you know, divide and rule. I see it clearly because I've seen it in India my whole life.
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. The 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 division, uh, you know, getting right into the center of people. We can't live in in peaceful coexistence, uh, sharing ideas, sharing values at uh, whatever your race is. And we have here now the whole thing about, uh, uh, you know, white uh uh, exceptionalism and so forth that we we if you're white then you everything is uh, you know goes your way and we hear it over and over and over again and uh you know it's I, re- I remember the, the you know when when the in this country when we had the civil rights movement in the 60s and Martin Luther King and so forth, Martin Luther King made the comment, that, you know, he had the dream of uh, the day when his children would be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin. They have literally thrown Martin Luther King out, and nobody is judged by the content of their character. We're not allowed to uh, even uh, talk about having white friends or having friends of of different races and so forth. Everything is division, division, division. The reason, obviously, for that is that uh, you are much easier to control when when things are divided that way. You, uh, every single thing that happens in this country now is the white's fault, you know And uh, it's the, the hatred, the ability to have to have friends of a different race uh, is is just you know not allowed. And that makes us much more vulnerable to control. That's what it's about. And that is the education system. There are no um, <clears throat> academics taught in our American schools today. You de- we, we have on our television lots of times, uh, or you see it on the Internet, too. People will take a microphone out and go ask people on the street questions just basic questions that you and I would sit there and scream the answer to and people are going oh, i don't know what in what year was the war of 1812 fought uh 1922 I you know it's a, they know nothing about uh, uh history about philosophy about economics they're now telling us i think i said earlier that that uh mathematics is now racist aren't they really saying that that that's because that the you know this other race is too stupid to know to be able to add two plus two i mean really talk about racist (laughs) that's who is so we you know have all this to divide us conquer us and uh you know put all this stuff in control make us accept it
0: Hmm. what the term woke is used a lot um and to me that's that is around uh social justice but how how is it um what's the meaning of it in in the states how how is it cuz i have got a brother that lives in the states and he said don't use that term it's not it's not a nice term
2: basically well it's, it's funny to me because what woke is showing me to be is that everybody's asleep if they accept it so i don't know how that works <laughs> but uh i mean it literally is this is what you're allowed to think and if you think outside of that, you are a racist. You are a hate monger, and uh, so you know you're, you're not to be accepted into anything. You're, you're going to shut you out of society, and uh, and that's that's literally what where, where it's headed. Yeah,
0: yeah. And add to that a conservative bigot. I mean, I, all these terms just come out, and uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, it, it's in the New Zealand parlance uh, regularly now. That term. But you ask people to define it, and it is quite hard. Uh, but it is all the facets we're talking about today. Um, yeah.
1: Looking at well, you, Don. You are probably, uh, you know, someone like Don. I think the term that the papers used was pale, stale, white male, and anyone <laughs> a white middle-aged man. I'm, I'm not being ageist, Don. Here, no, <laughs> not much, but there's not much between you and me. But that's that's literally the way it is used. Everything your race is weaponized, and I. I have grown up myself in a multicultural society in India, and I've literally now I cringe at the word every time they use the word multicultural because when I was growing up, it just happened. You didn't put resources and try to make it work, it just happened. I come from an army family. So, dad's a retired lieutenant colonel, brother's a colonel. And incidentally, Tom, I think I found you about 10, 15 years ago on YouTube talking about the United Nations. My dad, I'm my brother. They both served uh, UN peacekeeping missions about 20 years apart. Dad in Somalia, and my brother in Congo. And uh, you, are, you don't have a choice in India. You know, they pick up the most war decorated battalions or the ones with the most gallantry awards. And off you go. That's your duty. Go there. You're deployed. And I got down on this path looking at the UN 30 years ago, about 2009 or 10. About the time I came to New Zealand, I found your chats on this where this is heading and now it is like all my last 30 years of talking about how futile my dad now he's 73 he's often remarks how pointless it was what they did in somalia then the americans had just pulled out operation black hawk down and dad's battalion was deployed in 92 late 92 early 93 and he lost seven men in an ambush and you know he's never forgotten that and uh, just out of somalia And he says, you look at Somalia today, it's just still, and I don't mean this, but he said, it's still a hellhole. They have not allowed the people to improve. So what the hell were we doing there? He says, I lost men. And you can't even say it was for, you know, some cause. What was it for?
2: Yeah, Exactly. Uh, A lot of people made money off of it, (laughs) you know, a lot of people supplying supply the supplies for it and that sort of thing. So people got political power. Uh, we you know the funny thing the, as I, I said at the very beginning, the United Nations was created so that we wouldn't have any more Wars. We have had more Wars since the United Nations has been put in place than ever in the history of the world. And the worst part, starting with Korea the Korean War, uh, is there's never been a victory in a, in a war again. And uh, Vietnam was a prime example. The, here we had thousands and thousands of, of young men dying there. They were not allowed to fight in certain areas. They weren't allowed to uh, do different things. And uh, it was just a, t- a total disaster. There was no, no victory there. And, uh, you know, nothing changes with this. So why are we sending people in to fight these wars for, for no reason? And things just get more oppressed by the day as uh, as we're looking at it. So, um, you know, I uh, uh, back in 19 or 2006, I was invited to Cambridge University to debate the issue of the United Nations before a 200 year old debating society. And it was supposed to be three to three you know, on the issue about the United Nations. It ended up being five to one, as you can imagine. And my entire presentation uh, was really focused on the idea that every policy coming out of the United Nations was redistribution of wealth. And I said, rob, rape, and pillage is the basic operandi of the modus operandi of the United Nations. That got an exciting response. Um, When I was done, uh, I went to this reception. I was the only speaker that went to this reception, and a young girl came up to me, and she said, Can I ask you a question? I said, Sure. She said, You really don't believe in redistribution of the wealth? And I said, No, it's theft. And she said, but if somebody has more than they need, shouldn't they share that? And I said, why should they? And she backed up, and I started to go into philosophy, teaching about private property rights and building personal wealth and the idea of incentive to do, get you ahead and so forth. And next thing I know, I've got 50 people standing around me listening as I'm going through all this. When I got done, she said... What an interesting point of view. How can I learn more? But here she is at Cambridge University, supposedly having the greatest opportunity to learn. And she knew nothing about this. This is the education system of today. No, There are no academics being taught. It is all about uh, the, the, the whole idea of behavior modification and uh, using psychology to change people the way they think and, and mold them. And uh, and that's what I said. We're we're producing out of our education system global village idiots, and uh, they they don't know even to ask the questions of these things. So that's that's what we're really facing. Well,
0: it's interesting and timely you bring that up. Just yesterday there was a headline about uh, the university closest to us um, in dire financial straits, uh, and I would argue it's because of the very issues you have just brought up that. Teaching a whole lot of rubbish, uh, poor quality um, um, output, uh, but of course I've had that ability to do that for many years, and of course now uh, with the less students, uh, perhaps, um, and perhaps too well-paid administrators and and governors and and tutors, so. It's all coming home to roost. Our oh, plus on top of that, uh, this big thing about being mindful of the treaty and it's called Tithuriti and all that expanding through the uh, institutions is um it doesn't add any value to anybody. Uh so I don't know, we're in a we're in a bind. This long march through the institutions is well and truly alive and well.
2: Oh. Well, I uh I mean I sound like a broken record, but getting down into the root down into the basics and in, in your local community and building a firm structure from there is the only way we have to fight back when you try to fight as an individual or just a small group of individuals try to fight the national government you're not going anywhere but you begin to build that route then you create if, if you succeed at this you create some individuals who understand these issues. Uh, I mean, I'm astounded by how many elected officials stand there, totally stupid, not knowing any th- any of this stuff, and can't argue it. They just accept it because they don't know any better. You begin to build a, a group of uh, people to, that will eventually begin to run for office, and they they understand these policies and so forth. We've got to begin that that system, and it will grow. It'll go up to the next level and to the next level of government, and we begin to turn it around. The problem is that our side has not wanted to do the hard work to organize, to protect and promote the idea of liberty. And so now we're suffering the consequences of that. And now we've got a much harder job, but it's not over. We can turn this around because they're showing themselves so clearly for what they are and uh, so many more people are going to suffer from it. One of the things we need to do in our movement is begin to paint the picture very clearly of what it is we are for. They're telling everybody what we're against. They're telling them that we're all just not only just a bunch of racists, but we're hate mongers. If we want to cut back on the size and and, and the spending of government, well, that's taking money out of the pockets of this group and so forth. And they paint us all as a bunch of hate mongers. We need to begin to paint the picture What does freedom mean? What are we really advocating here? And what will be the result of that if we are able to achieve it and begin to show how this is how somebody can have goals and dreams in their life? You know, when I grew up, that's what we talked about as we're growing up our goals in our life, our dreams, what we want to be. You don't hear that mentioned today. Nobody talks about it, it's just survival. We need to start telling people we got to move past survival and begin to live our lives as we choose and not have, ask a government, what can you do on your property without their permission? The property that you pay for, the property that you invest in everything you have in it, what investment do they have in it? None, but they tell you what you can do on it. We have got to begin to ask these questions and make these policies make it very clear. What is it we're advocating? The money you earn is yours. The incentive you have to make a change. Do you want to get involved? What what really interests you? To uh, you know, make up new ideas, new move forward. Where are the Edison's and the Teslas and so forth today to get us new ideas to move us forward? This is what we've got to take on and begin to promote and stop being on the defensive. We got to take the offensive and turn it around because these people are tyrants and they're idiots well well said tom uh fantastic i uh i've had that sort of
0: ethos for many many years and i have this uh, this line that says um um the takers are taking too much from the makers and it never used to be that way and i want uh, a, a society of makers not takers um yeah you can take if you want to use that term in, in a proper transactional method yeah, willing buyer, willing seller, but when you've got takers through regulation and legislation that is oppressive, um, you know, I find it quite a uh, well, it's it's an abuse of power. And uh when you have people in suits, in high places, um altering your ability to be a maker, then it's an arrogance of them to decide that they can
2: continue their taking. So the chickens have to come home to roost, don't they? Absolutely, and they will. They absolutely will. If we don't take control, then it's not going to be pleasant. It's well, not going and, to be uh, something you want to do. And, you know, I've had massive
0: uh, retaliation when I um, used the We came in, in New Zealand about 2008. That there became this term. Uh, aside from the 91 uh, Resource Management Act and the big precautionary principle under that act, uh, there came this this idea that we'd all collaborate uh, because we'd collaborate and uh, we'd all be happy because we'd get the right outcomes. Well, it's been quite a coercive concept, and so you argue uh, you label, um, you know, what some people uh, term a collaborator, and it didn't end well for some and in war times, um, and then you label them a uh, coercive communist, and all of a sudden. Um, you are know, considered a, a madman. So I've had that pushback. Uh but I think that's the shock tactics we've got to use. Uh you know, uh there's plenty of, as you talked about earlier, we haven't given the history lesson on why communism is bad and 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 won't end well for any of us if we're not careful. But there seems to be this unwillingness to even talk about it in New Zealand. Um so the shock tactics that I've used have uh, have not done me well, but um you know, gotta keep talking
2: about it. You don't know who you've influenced though by it. So maybe maybe you've changed somebody's life because you've said it. And that's what we have to do. Well, uh, and we've yeah. stepped
0: uh, This reality check radio has only been going about three and a half weeks. And uh, you know, we've got okay. all sorts of conversations going on um right. from a variety of topics. Um, some of it's shocking, some of it's quite mild. Um, but you know, the conversation's gotta start, hasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It does. And what you were saying just now, Tom, you know, that young girl you spoke about at Cambridge, that exemplifies what a friend of mine, she often uses these words. She says, if you're not a communist at twenty, you don't have a heart. But if you're still a communist at 40, you don't have a brain. And something will change by then and one lives in hope. But yeah, it is universities, especially these days. My husband and I, you know, out here hiring on the farm and we that's a big place 1200 cows we often think someone who's just fresh out of university uh thinks we it has actually skewed our mindset in how we view fresh graduates coming out of our universities here such like the one don mentioned but there's this university out here that's in dire financial straits yesterday it says it's going to shed of hundreds of jobs possibly at the same time it spent over a million bucks designing a new logo Removing the traditional coat of arms, was it, on their website and putting in a local, uh, I think it's a local tribal, some that, sort of motif there. Mm. So it is like, what are your priorities? How much of the cultural Marxism is going to go on? And uh, where does it stop? Where does the insanity stop?
0: One other thing is changing subject uh, slightly, but on the same vein in terms of spending. Yesterday, it became apparent to me that New Zealand spent 116 million on advertising around COVID response. Um, now, there's five million people in this country. 116 million was spent by the state feeding media organisations and uh, and the like. And that's, that's before we give the privileged um, journalism fund, which is, um, our last count was 55 million, but I rumors are it may have doubled. Uh, so, gosh, we're in a bind. Uh, has America got these same issues going on? as the United States, I mean,
2: got these same issues oh, of, of large. No question about it. Absolutely. And, of course, we have uh, these people in the White House now and in Congress, uh, Biden and Schumer and Pelosi and these people putting all this stuff in place. And uh, uh, unfortunately, the Republican Party uh, is useless. They they don't, they just sit there and twiddle their thumbs and uh, allow all this stuff to happen when they've got such a wealth of stuff that they could go in and attack and, and begin to show why it's bad and so forth. And uh, uh, Mitch McConnell, who's the head of the Senate, I, I have said, you know, of all the politicians in the world that we could loathe, the number one politician that I loathe is Mitch McConnell, because, you know, he, he's just letting all this happen. He's going along with them. He's, he's one of them, basically, and uh, pretending to be the opposition, and he's not. And uh, so I think that's more loathsome. It's, it's one thing to, pr- you know, promote your own ideas and what you believe in. It's another one to lie about it and say, oh, that's not me. You know, that's more loathsome to me. <laughs> so, But um, you know, what we have now, of course, behind all this, uh, and, and with the whole COVID lockdown, if if you really hated living under that and what it was like where you're having to stay home and have, you can't go out and can't do anything and everything's controlled, this is their view of what we need to do. I'm hearing more and more of, of their policies about staying at home. Uh, don't go to the movie theater, don't go out to a club. Don't you know, get in your car and travel because that hurts the environment and all this. and the the great reset is the root of all of this now. It is it is taken uh, when they when they introduced agenda 21, they said it was a comprehensive blueprint for the reorganization of human society. And then we got agenda 2030 and it's 17 goals, which had hardly anything to do with the environment, but it, it laid out the, uh, you know, the goals what they want to do. Then we here we got the green New Deal. Now we have the great reset. What Klaus Schwab did was rewrite the uh, comprehensive blueprint to bring it up to speed. What it really is is reinvented communism. That's what it is. And it is the the reorganization of human society. The uh, uh, it's the outright elimination of our economy, our income sources, and our jobs, our private property, our personal privacy, our individual choice, uh, our families as we know them, the uh, our communication, our interge- entertainment, the uh, you know farms, healthcare, everything is being reset. That's what they mean. They have openly said, as they've gone through this, I got quote after quote, as they're attacking capitalism. Capitalism is a thing to hate. Kids coming out of school today hate capitalism because that's what they've been taught. And, uh, you know, these kids coming out of school are victims of this because how could they ever know any better? What, you know, we, we, they sit there eight hours a day having this stuff pounded into their head. And, you uh, this is this is done by you know uh, that's part of the goal of doing this to create these generations, but the great reset is what they have said now is that uh, sustainable. This is this is the key word. I, I haven't mentioned it yet. I'm surprised I haven't sustainable, sustainable, sustainable. Everything sustainable has absolutely nothing to do with protecting the environment. It is a trigger word to get you to voluntarily give up your liberties and. Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum who created the Great Reset uh, are using that word. They're saying now on um, the investments in, in corporations and so forth, if they can't prove that their product is produced sustainably, they will not be invested in. And Klaus Schwab has said that only a few corporations will survive this. Are you watching what's happening? You know, and around the world, the world economy. And what's interesting about this is you're now finding corporations that are coming up with ideas on how their product is sustainable. We have a product of, pardon me, toilet paper in this country that now says on the outside labeling of the cover of the packaging that for every hundred uh, trees cut down to make this product, 400 are Planted. It's sustainable. <laughs> what did we just have? Bud Light beer. I don't know if you've been watching this in your news or not. What they have just gone through. See, they're they're playing the game. They're sustainable. You know they they're caring about the transgender community and so forth. One of the ESG uh, uh, goals and all that. So there it is. These corporations are going to do this dance to prove that they are sustain- the, the uh, automotive industry taking everything to the electric cars, even though nobody can afford them and there's not going to be electricity for them. But they're going to do the right thing. This is the Great Reset. And, uh and what what they're putting in place. it is reinvented communism. it is absolute total control and you will have no freedoms whatsoever if this is put into place. And Klaus Schwab is the perfect portrayal of a James Bond villain <laughs> you know, <laughs> that you can just see him right there. <laughs> we got to be James Bond take him out. Yeah, we're going to be 007.
0: Interestingly, uh, Tom, our um, former prime minister is one of the young global leaders um, of that school of uh, WEF. And in her acceptance speech a couple of years ago, uh, she used all the words straight out of the Klaus's uh, granddad Klaus's um, playbook like build back better and uh, we're going to have a just transition and we're going to be kind and we're going to do all these things I mean you've you've heard Trudeau say similar stuff you've seen seen Biden say it you've seen Macron say it Uh, Boris Johnson used it Um, I think even Scott Morrison in Australia used it so there's hope because two out of those three in fact three out of those six have have left power so there is hope (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and it's amazing with Klaus Schwab. He wrote this book, COVID-19 and the Great Reset. And uh he says that this book was written uh after the pandemic to show the weakness of capitalism and what we learned from that lockdown and, and how it showed the weakness of capitalism. Now here's the amazing thing about this book the lockdown the whole pandemic lockdown started in march of 2020 this book came out in august of 2020 now i've written three books and i know that first of all to write a book you got to come up with a concept then you got to do the research then you actually have to write it then you have to find the publishers and editors to you know put it together and get it out there this superman did this in five months Yeah, right. (laughs) This was written before the pandemic. In 2018, the World Economic Forum did a test uh, trial run of what would happen if they had a worldwide pandemic. In 2019, he did it again with Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. And in 2020, golly gee, it happened. You know, what a superman. Oh,
0: nothing to, <laughs> nothing to see here. No no crony yeah. capitalism. No cronies are involved in any of this uh, capitalist right. uh, push.
1: No, absolutely nothing. Tom, thank you so much for your time today. And I think we've, we should be at some time, if we can get you back, you've been very generous today. We should talk about sure. ESG and migration and how a few of those things are playing into this whole issue because I, I know you have migration there. For you guys, it's as easy as just opening your borders We have mass migration here in New Zealand in the midst of a housing, medical, I mean, every sort of crisis you can think of. And uh, God, the chickens are really coming home to roost. For our listeners, this was Tom DeWeese. And uh, for those who would like to know more, have a look at AmericanPolicy.org. I see a special on your book right now, Tom, The Activist Handbook, How to Fight Back in Your Community. And I should say I have downloaded, taken a digital one of it at one time. And Catching Fire News, that is also, Tom, how frequently do you do a podcast there?
2: We've got uh, six different hosts that do um, uh, programming on there. And uh, uh, we're just one year old, and we've done over uh, 300 programs in that period of time
1: right yeah and that's something i uh, your new i think i've subscribed somehow to your website because each time a new one is loaded i get an email reminder and that's that's Mm -hmm. definitely always worth a listen and each time i watch it it never fails to strike me how similar we are it's the same thing happening across the world and yet there's those who think that if we say it's a planned uh program that is a conspiracy well For those who'd like to listen more about this conspiracy, we shall have a lot more to come. But for now, we will sign off and see you at another time. Thank you so much for listening. Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson
0: with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Okay, welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Jaspreet and Don. 2023, May, we're leading up to our nation's election later in the year. And I suppose it's vital that we take an interest in it. Well, for me anyway, I take a big interest in it. So something that piqued my interest earlier this week was an email from Heartlands New Zealand. or Heartlands, a fledgling political party. Um, It's a website, says it's a um, voice for rural and provincial New Zealand. So I figured it was time RCR, Reality Check Radio, found out a little more about it. So... I've got the chairman on. Uh, Jaspreet and I have welcomed the chairman uh, to this uh, forum. Uh, welcome, Lawrence. Lawrence Day.
3: Thanks, Don. Uh, yeah, no, it's good to uh, have the opportunity to speak to uh, your listeners.
0: Yeah, so give us a bit of a backstory about yourself, Lawrence. I know you've had a bit of a bit of a political history. And, um, tell us a bit about it and why you think Heartland's about to uh, take this world by storm.
3: <laughs> right, well, uh, I mean, I'm from the Waikato. I grew up on uh, farmland in the Waikato. My father actually managed a farm for what was the dairy board back in the day with 400 bulls. And so I grew up on that farm, and um, I guess there's some value in it because uh, I certainly know BS when I see it, and I see a hell of a lot of it down in Wellington. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we moved to town when I was 9 or 10, Uh I always miss the rural scene so when I finished university my first job was at Ruakura Research Centre. I worked for Balanced Fertiliser and then went into private consultancy and while I was doing that I built a couple of greenhouses and grew tomatoes so I've had a fairly good sort of primary sector background I guess. Uh, I still live on an acreage and run a few animals and uh, you know, my kids made money raising calves and pigs and now my grandkids are doing the same. So um, I have a lot of empathy for the provincial and rural sector in New Zealand. And I've been involved in politics for, well, over 30 years, uh, basically in the National Party. I was the chairman in Hamilton East and I was regional deputy chair and uh, very involved for a number of years. Um, not so much recently, but of course what's happening now is um, the political scene, I think, is uh, uh, not a good one for New Zealand, and so uh, I've got back involved again and um, jumped in and joined the Heartlands Party.
0: So, so you know, the argument is that uh, rural and provincial New Zealand, it's bluer than blue genetically, uh, uh, so what What can Heartland do to, uh, and why is Heartland so concerned about provincial and rural New Zealand's um, representation under an MNP environment?
3: Yeah, well, look, I mean, that's a a good question. You you don't uh, have to go very far talking to people in the rural sector to realise that uh, every which way you turn, they're getting slapped around the ears. You know, it's ute taxes and diesel taxes and methane taxes and carbon taxes, and every time they turn around, there's another tax on them. And the irony is that the rural provincial sector of New Zealand represents 12% of New Zealand's workforce, but it produces 82% of New Zealand's export income. So, you know, slapping the rural sector around like they are is, is literally killing the goose that's laying the golden egg. It's just the craziest thing possible. And so, you know, being involved in the rural sector and and you know, most of my friends on farms and things like that, you, you gotta say this is crazy. Something has to give.
0: Yeah, well I noticed Groundswale comes out and talks about the the new taxes uh and the like that are that are pending or in place. And uh you know the 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 word that's similar is attack. Attack. Uh and I you know I see it that way. It is a complete attack on the uh, efforts of rural New Zealand. Uh how perhaps the uh, Beltway of Wellington's inclined to squander the opportunity that um, rural New Zealand builds for this country. So so what is it about Heartland that differentiates itself uh, from the rest? I mean, the way I look at your website, you say you don't want any party vote. So that's the first point of differentiation. And you're after, say, 10 electorate seats. Um, can you find 10 electorate seats in, uh, in Heartland, New Zealand?
3: Well, yeah, look... Uh, I suppose let's back up and talk about this uh, no party vote party. In, in New Zealand, under MMP, the vote that really counts if you're National or Act or Labour or the Greens, the vote that really counts is the party vote, because it's the party vote that determines the number of seats you have in Parliament. Uh, whether you win zero seats like uh, the Greens usually do, it doesn't matter whether you win an electorate seat or not. If you win party vote, you can get into Parliament. So that's the one that counts. But there is an ironic exception to that. And that is if you stand in a seat and uh, as a as an electorate candidate and you win that seat, Parliament can't give you one of the 120 seats because you didn't get any party vote. So what they do is they create an additional seat in Parliament. It's called an overhang. It's part of MMP uh, Act. It, uh, ended up with an overhang seat, I think, 2011. Rodney Hyde, uh, because you know he won the seat in Epsom, but he didn't get any party votes, So they created this extra seat. So here's the issue: if you want to change the government, and uh, a lot of people in New Zealand do. <laughs> I asked the question: Do you think that National and ACT are going to do it this October? I mean, what do you think, Don? Do you think National and ACT are, are going to do it?
0: <laughs> uh, well, you're asking me to be a little biased as an independent host, um, but based
3: but, on the polls,
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, but but based on the polls, the the thing that gets me is National think they can sleepwalk to victory now. They've got um, got everything in place, and there's not not a, even though I see it slightly differently to most. There's not a tissue paper between the left and the right of politics in the, in the mainstream at the moment. Um, National and ACT, uh, will they eat each other up as well? Because it looks like ACT's on the rise. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's it's a vexed question. But uh, I do know that provincial New Zealand, under an MMP environment, hasn't been getting a fair shake of the stick and yeah. hasn't been since MMP came into, pair, into being.
3: No, and it's an interesting uh, scenario to look at. I mean, if you want to change the government, at the moment it means National and ACT need to get more party votes than Labor, Greens and the Maori. At the moment, the polls are showing that Labor, Greens are basically neck and neck with National and ACT and the Maori Party will hold the balance of power in the next parliament. Um, You know, I say welcome, Aotearoa. Um, But, uh, you know, if that doesn't appeal to you, what can you do about it? Uh, it's no good, say, switching from national to ACT because all of ACT's seats actually, if ACT didn't exist, they would be national voters. Um, so it's no good dividing the right. What the right actually has to do is get extra seats somehow. Now, it's only two ways you can get it. One way is to take them off Labour. Um, But why would a Labour voter switch to National when, as you say, there's no difference between the two? (laughs) You know, Labour National has had to move to the political centre in order to hoover up uh, the party vote from the centre. So if if National moves to the right, that massive centrist block of voters will just move stay with Labour and uh, National will never have a chance. So, so just politi- political expediency means that National has moved to the soft centre. And of course, that really doesn't help the rural sector in New Zealand. As you say, the rural sector has basically been ignored for the last 30 odd years. And, and you know National has taken the rural provincial vote for granted. Um, you know, and they've lost some of that vote now to act, but it, it makes no difference. Um, at the end of the day, national and act combined don't look like they're going to make it in this election. So you need these additional seats, and here's where the overhang comes in. So, if you uh, at the last election, um, the Heartland Party stood in Port Waikato, the Heartland candidate got eight and a half thousand votes, and very, very few, just a couple of hundred or a few hundred party votes. National won the seat. But if uh, the Heartland candidate had got another about 5,000 votes, he would have been the candidate in Port Waikato. And here's the irony, the National Party guy would have still been in on the list. So it makes no difference at all to National. Uh, It just switches an electorate member to a list member, but it makes no difference to the number of MPs they have. But now you've added this overhang, this additional member in parliament, number 121 would have been in there on the right. Now, it's a simple strategy. Um, It's happened accidentally in the New Zealand uh, electorate. Like I say, ACT did it first um, back in 2011 when they won Epsom. They won the seat, but got very few um, party votes. So the Heartland Party has said, well, look, you know, this is a, this is a strategy that's available under uh, MMP. The rural sector in New Zealand is the most hammered sector around, the most unappreciated, taken for granted, and now vilified and attacked. The rural sector in New Zealand needs its own representation in Parliament, and the best way to do that is with a party that only goes for these overhang or additional seats. They leave the party vote to national or act and just take the candidate vote. If they gain four or five, or, or up, there's, there's about a 10 or a dozen electorates where this would work, where you can say to a national voter, look, vote national on the party vote, vote heartlands with your candidate vote, you're going to get two candidates in your electorate, and those extra candidates, those extra MPs are going to tilt Parliament to the right. That's really the only strategy uh, that I can see that would have a chance of overturning the current uh, polls. And, you know, given that for instance, Labor is the party in power. They are quite happy to hand out the lollies in election year. Well, every year, really. And, uh, you know, they've turned a large proportion of New Zealand into middle-class welfare recipients. So, you know, I think the rural segment so, needs to fight back.
0: Yeah, so so just listening to all of that, um, it's it sounds easy. But we know it's not and you know it's not uh, because you've got an urbanizing uh, population that's slowly being attracted to to the majority of uh, urban centers uh, and provincial um, quantum you know in terms of the electorate is is less in terms of citizens votes how do you think um you, you know as you've talked about in, in sort of a, a small ways how do you think you're going to get a national or an act voter to see sense uh, in your eyes, not mine, um, because if I know human nature, they go with what they've always done, although the last election was a massive turn up for the books with the way uh, even Provincial New Zealand turned red under the party vote. So yeah. how do you think you're going to get that psyche change? Because, you know, New Zealanders um, have had three years of um, government-large yes, uh, at your and my expense. The borrowing is significant. The debt and deficit is um, expanding. And we know rural New Zealand is going to be asked to produce more to pick up the bill. Um, do you think the recession that we look like we're about to have is going to have an effect on this election and get some a dose of realism back in the country?
3: Well, if there's one thing I've learned over the years is that, you know, in politics, people have short memories, And, you know, when Jacinda was getting a lot of flack and the numbers were going down, 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 uh, you just change the face on the front and all of a sudden people see a nice smiley face. It's a different one. And they say, oh, this is nice. Away we go. And you just can't hardly believe that people forget about the uh, issues that they were worried about before. You know, you put a new name on Three Waters and all of a sudden it's, it's, it's okay, you know. Uh, so you have to hand it to uh, Wellington politicians. Um, they certainly know how to fool some of the people all of the time. And uh, as we saw in the last election, they fooled a lot of people um, going into the election. So, Look, so, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, you know, really, the idea is that if we can even pick a, a couple of three electorates and get the message out there. Look, it's very simple. Party vote the way you always have, national or act, candidate vote heartlands, and you're going to get an extra MP. Um, Yeah, it's quite a job to to educate people to that. But, you know, if you look at electorates, I I think that the average provincial electorate, the people are probably more politically oriented than... uh, than a lot of urban electorates. Politics really matters to them. There's a lot of small business people in urban electorates, whether it's the, um, and sorry, in, uh, in rural and provincial electorates, whether it's the small towns or whether it's the farms. These people are business people. And, you know, the things that this government has done just hurts them. So, you know, it's it's a social media campaign. It's a provincial newspapers campaign. It's a beat the street campaign. Uh, to, you know, educate people how to successfully split their vote or simply really split their vote so that they get extra MPs on the right side of Parliament.
0: Yeah, so so I looked around the electorates in the country at the moment and there is a few that stand out. And uh, just thinking about the last 24 hours fiasco in uh, Tyree, you'd have to think that um, that would be a prime candidate Uh, for a uh, heartlands candidate uh, prime electorate for a heartlands candidate
3: yeah look it's interesting you say that we certainly uh sat up and took notice when uh, that happened and uh you know look if 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 your listeners take a look at our website and see what we stand for uh and also see how simple the strategy is um if you've got listeners in tayari Go on our website. Contact us. Put your hand up and get involved. Um, you know, we'll we, we. If you want to change things, it's no good just waiting for somebody else to do it. You got to get stuck in yourself and do something. And so we invite anybody that wants to see change in in uh, the political situation in New Zealand to get a hold of us.
0: Yes, Probably so. Mm, so just as an aside, as a, as an adjunct to all of this, do you see any parallels to, I know it's a different political system in Australia, but they have what's called the Bush Party, uh, the Nationals, which is effectively provincial Australia's um, representatives. Uh, they have one nation. They have um, these sort of centre-right parties, and they do have, uh, it seems, a, a bit of influence over the over the parliament. Admittedly, in Australia at the moment, it's all pretty much red bar Tasmania. Um, Do you see any similarity, aside from the concept of the overhang, which you're talking about, between the policies that you would have as to what they would be promoting in sort of the bush of Australia?
3: Yeah, look, you know, I think probably the best analogy at the moment is what's happened in Holland. Uh, You know, in Holland, uh, the government under the EU rules was just attacking farmers like crazy, crazy reducing their fertiliser. The the regulations that were coming out were going to reduce uh, farm productivity by 30%, one-third. Now, Holland is an unbelievably efficient uh, food producer. It feeds, I don't know, 50 or 60 million people besides just the people in their own country. It was It's a devastating attack. And so the farmers in Holland and the rural sector in Holland got together, formed a uh, a rural party, and they won 17 seats in their uh, Upper House, Senate, Parliament in the the elections uh, about two months back. Now, you know, that that is probably a really good analogy for what's happening in New Zealand. You know, the the rural provincial sector is just under attack, under attack. uh, And, you know, they need to take stock and say, we need our own representation in Parliament. You know, I, I really admire the guys in Groundswell. They've done a fantastic job of, of raising awareness and getting farmers thinking, you know, we need to do something. And, you know, I've joined a few of their parades. Um, you know, the, the, the sad fact is that tractor parades don't change government policy.
0: Uh, you know, unless, and, that, and, and, unless you do them every week, like in Holland. They did them <laughs> days and weeks on end. In New yeah, Zealand, sorry to interrupt, Lawrence, we're inclined to do it one day and we go home. That's the New Zealand way. We're very respectful. In Holland the, and France and Belgium and Germany and other countries, they just, um, they're just they incessant. And I have to just one little adjunct to your story. That 17 seats that the BBB party got was out of 75 seats in the parliament. So you imagine if we took the list MPs out of the New Zealand Parliament uh, and we had our, about our 72 electorates, is it? Yep. The parallel is there as to the dominance of the list MPs in our Parliament versus the um, sort of, you know, the people elected by the electorate. And I think that's our problem, isn't it? Uh, that, you know, I, I'm quite overt about my politics because I've been here for a long time, just like you, you uh, you see the failings of the uh, MMP environment for rural and regional New Zealand Uh, yeah so 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 the gain is as you're saying um get rural and regional New Zealand to have a um have something different to what they've had for the last 30 years
3: Yeah, look, you know, we've got a Green Party that represents, um, you know, a group of people out on the left. We've got a Maori party. We've got the ACT Party representing business people. Who is representing rural and provincial New Zealand? National used to, but to be fair to them, they can't. They don't anymore and they can't because they have to go for that soft centre. So, you know, rural New Zealand has gone from being sort of taken for granted under national to being vilified and attacked under Labour. And, uh, you know, if Labour Greens Maori wins the next election, it's only going to get worse. So, you know, if rural and provincial New Zealand wants a change, they have to be in Parliament. It's it's no good being out on the street on your tractor. It would probably be helpful if you did like the French do and dump truckloads of uh, manure on them outside the Champs champs de but you know, if we went down to Parliament and did that, um, you know, in New Zealand you'd probably get attacked and
0: Yeah, it's it's not something off,
3: but, but not something you know.
0: it's it's sort of the sort of thing that a lot of us have always thought, but of course we don't condone because we are law abiding and respectful.
3: Yeah, um, you know, and that that's Kiwis. You know, we we feel like, well, you know, we, we should be able to have our protest, but we're unlikely to sort of go to the to the lengths that they have in Europe. But you know, the, the length that we need to go to is to have a genuine rural or provincial party. You know, the, the Otrahongas, the Invercargles, the, you know, the Pyro and Matamata, the little towns that support the rural sector, you know, they're just, they're just being screwed by this government.
1: And, you know, recently, Don and I, we were out at a local pub here and we and I think I should I'll mention it Don we were talking to a national MP who happened to pass by and very clearly we spoke about the fact there were a few others that you know why is farming being hammered so much and we are constantly about the climate and seriously what is our contribution you leave alone the science what's our contribution less than a quarter of a percentage and the answer we got was yep we know that but national cannot say that because the bulk of our voters the two million north of Auckland I'm sorry if we do that that's political suicide and after that that was last month this week I attended an ACT meeting in town again the same thing we've got technology for you guys you guys we'll sort you out and I often wonder when farming is concerned what is the difference between the left and the right this it's like there's nothing there's nothing to choose from
3: well it's interesting that you should bring that up um You know, it's ironic that in New Zealand we want to put a carbon tax on food producers. Now, you know, food producing was exempt under all the carbon trading rules, except for New Zealand, we're going to show the world how it can be done, at what expense. But, you know, even so, it's interesting that our food is the greenest... We we produce on a carbon footprint the greenest food in the world. Our carbon footprint per whatever type of food you want per sheep, meat, vegetables, whatever, is about half of that of, for example, Holland. So if you wanted to improve the world's carbon balance, if that's your goal, then surely you would shift production to New Zealand, where the carbon footprint is half of what it is in Europe or other places you know so you know it's it's it, that's that's the first thing it is just bad bad economics um and secondly you know i mean take for example the science around methane so methane is a global warming gas there's a few things about it that you've got to know it's unbelievably dilute in the atmosphere uh and so that's the first thing that's it's unmeasurable um its 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 contribution to global warming. Secondly, methane that's produced by animals. Uh, they eat grass, they produce some methane, they belch it out, it goes up to the atmosphere. Ultraviolet rays hit it, it breaks down into carbon dioxide, water, and ozone. Ozone we love, water we don't we don't care about, and the carbon dioxide goes back down and grows more grass. It's a cycle. Why the hell are we taxing farmers in a cycle? We're quite happy to burn trees and and turn it into electricity, knowing that the carbon dioxide goes back into trees. What's the difference between a cow and a tree? Why pick on the farmers? It's just bad science and bad economics.
0: Oh, and um, yeah, it's the power of majority over minority. Uh, interestingly, another guest we've interviewed today has an opinion on all of this as well. So, look, I think uh, the good thing is Lawrence uh, telling the story about why methane and nitrous oxide are, are non issues is, is is just our duty. Um, and on RCR, I hope that uh, that's part of our our um. Our story trying to get the truth out to people in fact that is our story trying to get the truth out and making it as simple as we can getting that truth out so um, just to, just to, to wrap up um what do you think about the language uh, you talk about the tissue paper well, i do that between left and right the language seems to be um it's okay uh for them to be as woke to use the term as can be but if someone on the right of centre dares say anything out of that woke paradigm, you're all of a sudden taken apart. Do you think that provincial New Zealand just wants to, uh, basically, to coin a phrase, terminate, terminate the woke side that uh, where, or, or terminate the wokester attitudes that are coming from um, the centre and centre left?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, this whole language thing is, is amusing. You know, I see the Greens are tearing themselves up because somebody called somebody else a crybaby. I mean, for real, you know, they want to kick someone out of Parliament for calling somebody else a crybaby. They didn't even use bad language or foul language or, you know, it's such a weak insult. You just got kind of to wonder, where are these people coming from? Their, their skins are so thin they they, they, they seek opportunity to take offence. And and it's just nuts, you know. I mean, freedom of speech. Surely you can call somebody a crybaby. I've been called a hell of a lot worse, and I don't get upset and throw my toys out of the cot. But you know, when when they, it's bad enough as you say that they pick on the right, but they even eat their own. You know, for language like crybabies. I mean, oh, it drives me nuts. You know, you're sort of a, yeah. I, this whole language thing and this whole woke thing is just. It's crazy. I mean, the objective, of course, is to shut down the argument. You know, if they don't have an argument against methane, they'll just say, you're a global warming denier. No, look, I want to debate the science. You're a denier. No, I just want to debate the science. No, 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 you're a denier. So, you know, it's attack the person uh, and ignore the argument. And it's hell of a frustrating. But look, you know, the only way that we can get past all of this being rammed down our throat is to have a genuine rural provincial party representing the productive sector of New Zealand. Now I'm not saying that you know farmers are the only producers in New Zealand, but you know, 82% of our export income. Geez, why are we letting them get away with it? We've got to turn this around and it just has to be a party that doesn't take its votes off of National enact that creates additional seats, extra seats. Check us out. Heartlands.org, that's heartlands with a NZ on the end. Heartlands dot org dot nz join us let's make a change
0: well um fantastic lawrence uh look it's great to to have you on uh it's it's great that there's um some new enthusiasm in the, in the political uh spectrum on the right of center uh i know there's other parties and we we will be fair to all of them if uh if they wish to come on um but it's uh, it's important that uh, you get your story out, uh, important that we give you a bit of a platform and can I say all power to your arm, uh, you know, you people know my background and uh, I've been 30 years or more trying to uh, hold up the end of uh, productive and well, the primary sector in New Zealand, only to be let down by so many. Um, so we thank you for coming on to Reality Check Radio. You're our first political guest. Um, actually, we've had all our guests so far have been from Hamilton North. So um, I think it's time we re- readdress that uh, or address the balance um, geographically. So uh, anyway, um, on behalf of J. Spreed and I, thank you very much again, Lawrence.
3: No, thank you, Don.
1: Thank you, Jay Spreed. Absolutely. And- thank you so much. And for, for our listeners, anyone who's looking for options other than uh, the party that had the re-education of Maureen Poo in one afternoon, well, here's one more option. And you make of these guys, what you will have a look at their website and yeah, pass the word on. Thank you so much for today, Lawrence.
3: Thank you, Jess. Pre- appreciate the time.
1: And that was your reality check with the Greenwash team. Me, Jess-Preet Boparai, and my co-host, Don Nicholson. And as we sign off, I'll leave you again with this taster of a podcast from James Lindsay. For listeners, some of you might recall last week we had signed off with a short bullet points podcast on ESG or the EST cartel as James Lindsay, an American born author, mathematician, and as he calls himself a professional troublemaker termed it. So this time around, here's a new word, Lysenkoism, which he defines as the enforced application of an ideological lens that distorts science. And thanks to the work Marxism and the sustainability agendas, we are facing our own looming catastrophe right now, throughout the world, but especially so through the West. I hope you enjoy this, and we'll see you again next week. Thank you for tuning in today. Goodbye.
0: Jaspreet Boparai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.